Do you plan to own a movie studio one day? Mm, great question. Yes, I do. Um, it's been a childhood dream and it's become more of a reality with so many independent people being able to do that and accomplish it. Um, so yes, that is, I have a big dream for the team I'm working with and building that team up to be big enough to need its own studio. So that's the goal, to build an infrastructure, um, uh, enough projects to funnel through to that studio be in use and then also offer that for independents like me that don't have that opportunity to give them that opportunity, just like another studio did for us in, in, in a lot of different projects we've worked on. So when you were a little girl, you were thinking about having a movie? Like, how does that work? Most of the girls want to be little princesses or they're playing, right. you know. So yeah, I, um, I liked theater. Theater was like, wow. And it wasn't even, I can't say not real theater, but I started in church theater. But I just loved that an audience, I remember the moment I looked out and the audience was like captivated. And I was like, this is, I want that. I want that. And it wasn't the, I, it never, for some reason, it didn't really apply so much to acting, but I just wanted to create that for people where they could see something and they could feel something from it. And it wasn't even real, it's art. So I was attracted to that. So it started with a theater type mindset, but then it went to film because I watched so many movies. Um, my parents didn't let us watch a lot. <laughs> they were pretty strict. So auntie's house, whoever, they would let me watch movies and I was just like captivated by it. So I was like, I can do this too. Like, so it's very childlike uh, mindset on it. But then you find out other little pieces like, oh, people have movie studios because I would watch old movies. I, Singing in the Rain was my favorite movie growing up. So then I'm like, studios, look at this, a big set with like uh, uh, ladders and things. I was like, I want that. So now it's a real dream, a real goal. But before it was just a, a fantasy. I think I read where you said you were okay being behind the scenes, which is just interesting just because you're beautiful. You would think that you'd want to be an actress or that people would have, you know, given you a lot of compliments, then you're okay with being behind the scenes. Can you talk about that? Yeah, I love, I love being behind the scenes. It's my favorite place to be. Um, it really, it comes down to um, knowing that leadership was a, was a strength of mine growing up. And not that an actor or someone in front of the scenes can't be a leader, but there's a limitation to your leadership. You're, you're leading through inspiration. You're not leading through, here's a job, here's an opportunity. Let me help build your life up. Let me show you how great you are. It's a harder thing for someone that's in front of the camera, someone that is out there to look like something or to be a piece, um, a use, a, a piece that someone uses. And that's in any industry, like a basketball player. I would want to be the owner, you know, because like, then I get to hire them and help them be better men or whatever it is. Like that, that was my thought process with that. I, behind the scenes, I saw my skill set could be an actor, but then I could use all of my skill sets behind the scenes. Yeah. Interesting. Okay. Also, too, you put yourself out there, there's going to be more hits coming your way. So it seems like sometimes it's more creatively freeing to be behind the scenes. I don't know, maybe I'm just- Oh yeah, uh, being behind the scenes is creatively freeing. And then also you have a sense, a better sense of power. Um, for me, and I speak a lot of this to actors that I know, I'm like, I could never do what you do. Cause they, their, their craft, they build it in such a beautiful way. And then they have to wait for someone to tell them, yes, that's hard. And I'm a very uh, East Coast <laughs> kind of girl. Like I go after things very aggressively. So for me to be dependent on just a yes or a no, which we always have to be dependent on that in some way in life, but it's like, at least I can like do a lot of things that can create content and things that has nothing to do with someone else telling me, I like what you're doing. 
I do that first and then try to build it in a way that they would like it so we can sell it or show it or whatever. Um, but at least we have that power and loose, using that word loosely, um, but that power we, we can make decisions and move and then get someone to say yes because they like what we made rather than the other way around. Have you thought about what this movie studio will look like? Like, will it be you in one state and then you can contract out to others? Like, how does this work? Yeah, I would love to have a studio um, on the East Coast. And uh, I, was, um, I was inspired by the West Coast studios. And then, then the East Coast studios, there was always something lacking or maybe it wasn't everyone brought together in a certain way. So the studio that I foresee in, my, in our future would be um, a place where you can go and do any type of film, any. So we will have every type of lot, every type of stage. Soundstage is what need be long, uh, very long and very high. But also on the side of like housing for actors, um, crew, whatever. Um, I want to have a um, like an apartment style place that's right there. Instead of them having to go to a hotel, they can just stay right there. Houses built that we could use for filming as well. Um, and then if we were filming something more so on the soundstage, one of those houses could be used for, say, the director and his family. Because I, I think something that really discourages me about the business, and then and whenever you're discouraged, you have to then figure out how to be encouraged by it, by an action you can do. Don't just stay in a discouraged place. Um, is that family structure is really difficult in the entertainment industry. We know this. But we can change that. It, just, it doesn't have to be an accepted fact. Like Angelina Jolie, like she was like, well, my kids are going to set. You have to hire me. You have to bring in an area where they could be all day. Got it. But imagine the power of someone that owns a studio to say, your family can come. You, your kids can see you after you're off set. You can bring your mom. You can bring whoever. And they're totally disconnected. It's not like the family will be on set. But then you can go back to a place where you can get centered for the evening. And I think actually performers and crew would actually perform better. And then the ultimate goal would be the family structure is held intact while still getting to pursue your dreams. You don't have to leave your family for a month, bring them with you, or at least let them come visit. Well, I know you had said in another interview about, um, uh, the interviewer asked you about how do you stay balanced, which is such a great question. And I know women especially are, are told to focus on that because they are usually more, uh, you know, the, the primary sort of caregiver for the child. And you said, just accept the fact there is no balance. Yeah, I think it's, it's really important. Um, our goals, we're taught to they find that perfect balance and everything will become peaceful in your life. But what if you never find it? Then you're not peaceful. Like We can find peace in, in imbalance as long as we have priority. Priority is more important to me than balance because if I have my priority straight, I'm not going to lose my sense of peace. If my son is okay, I have peace. If my husband's okay, I have peace. So within building an empire or going forth against your to get your dreams, keep in mind your priorities and you won't have that disconnected loss of peace while getting success. You can have them all if you focus on priority versus balance. For me, that's that's worked better. Yeah. So part of the studio would be to have a place where the family could be there if they wanted to. Absolutely. And then that balance sort of falls into line maybe a little more. Yeah, I think it's important um, that we don't just put the onus on the uh, the talent, the crew, to like, hey, figure it out. You're working for me for 12 hours today for the next 30 days, figure it out. I think we can actually provide some sense of, we actually care too. And um, I've seen it with corporations, it's not a new idea. Um, corporations do it, they have family day, et cetera. It's like, we can't disconnect because we're entertainers and we're in this different kind of world. We're in a different kind of world, but we're still in the world. We still have families, we still have 
uh, a mom. <laughs> we still have whatever it is that life issues that we deal with. Um, so unions are set in place to help with some of that um, on the side of life issues, but it's a, it's a big gap with um, someone that depends on which provider right now in the industry to what they need for their life and not just their career. So I think there's, there's a way to do both while still being very profitable and not having a strain on the production. You touched on family structure, family dynamics earlier. Were your parents encouraging of you being in the entertainment industry? Uh, my parents were not at all encouraging to the industry. Um, they were adamantly no. Um, I'm a child of foreigners, um, immigrants um, from Jamaica. Uh, my dad and you know he came to this country with a very specific dream to make a better opportunity for himself of course but his children so he came here and not too long later he had me and my brothers so you get a job you get benefits you build like the american dream that he had in his mind of what it is i grew up here though i, I saw other dreams in america that could be accomplished so i had a totally different idea of that and also i'm the kind of the I guess, unconventional one in the family <laughs> um, when it comes to structure. So I was just always that problem child that would not follow this beaten path. Like, okay, stay here. And I'm like, what's over there? You know, so um, no, they were not supportive. Now they're very supportive. Um, so I would encourage anyone dealing with that, like where family is maybe causing an extra layer of stress because they don't agree or believe in what your, your dreams are. It's okay. I think a really good book for that is called um, uh, The Dream Giver. It goes on a journey and, and the person experiences a lot of that and it shows you that's fine. They're just not going to understand this moment, but they're not coming from a negative space. And I think if someone told me that early on, it would have been so much easier just to, to say, I respect your opinion and then continue to move rather than why are they so hateful towards me? Why won't they like respect and support my dreams? It's like, it's OK. They're worried about you. They care about you. They, they know what's best for you in their own limited way. So it's okay if you saw another way. It's okay if you see an expanded way, but respect their, their disagreement and then go about your way with the confidence that what you have in you, that dream was put there with a purpose and you're gonna achieve that dream if you don't let that discourage you. How did you show them that this is what you wanted to do and you mm -hmm. still love them and you still, you're glad maybe that they're worried for you, but this is who you are. How did you show them that? Um, I think I showed them it by not quitting um, I quit a lot of things as a little kid. And I really think that's because I was, I'm a very like definitive person. So if I've already decided what I want to do and I start something else, I'm not going to be happy about it. So like, oh, I'll play, I'll play the trumpet, <laughs> you know, like, no, quit it. Like, oh, I'll go out for this, quit it, you know, um, things like that. So they didn't see, they would think, oh, she's going to go on this road and then maybe quit. You know, th there were things that showed them I don't stick to things other than this. Why would that be the thing? So. If I'm so dedicated to that one thing or dedicated to, you know, uh, success in school or something, you pick one or the other, they want school. It's like, go to college, get this degree and then go off and have this particular career. So I show them by sticking to what I said that I wanted to do. And I think um, sometimes people just need to be proven wrong um, and do it by your actions, not by your words. So I, did, I stopped arguing. I didn't, you know, keep saying, look what I did. And I didn't even keep them posted on a lot of things. I kept them posted when things happened that I knew that would mean something to them from a limited perspective. So it's like, hey, I just got hired to AD a feature film. Are you getting paid? Yep, I'm getting paid. <laughs> Rather than telling him the one I did that I wasn't paid for, you know? So it's like, you don't have to keep them up to date in your journey because that's gonna cause frustration. They're not gonna be excited about it. But when something happens where you feel like, okay, 
this is a moment in time that I can share and still don't be dependent on their reaction, but they might have a good reaction to this. Let me go ahead and share it. I think that's the best way to handle that, that family uh, pushback on your career. Do you think also because the last decade in the United States and other parts of the world, we've seen that that like safe route isn't necessarily safe? Mm, that's good. Um, yeah, I think it's becoming far more clear now than say 20 years ago. Um, that there are other ways people are starting businesses while they're having jobs and things like that. But also I think um, I think there's fear involved whenever someone's very cautious. There is a fear element to it and identifying what the fear is. I think for my dad, he grew up in um, a family that was very wealthy in Jamaica and he watched them lose their wealth like drastically. Like it was like a drastic thing. They owned horse track races and real estate and um, not the whole family, but the, the part that he was in, they lost their money and it caused a huge strain. It was caused a lot of problems for him in childhood. So I, that fear that he was coming from was real, but it wasn't going to happen in my life because I had him as a father. So I think um, it, once he started to trust that he gave me something that I'm applying in a different way, then that shows him I can make it because he gave me the work ethic. He showed me to work hard. Um, he gave me integrity, like always treat people the way you want to be treated and then some, you know, be honest, all those things I, I got from him. I just applied it in a different arena. So yeah, I think um, just kind of seeing what you know is truth applied differently can help expand people's minds too. Yeah. So when they say like the, the child always kind of does the opposite of what the parent wants, when you saw that your father for very good reason was fearful, did that make you have like more, let's say bravery? Did that make you almost want to hmm. prove that fear wrong? That's interesting. Um, I never thought of it as I was trying to prove him wrong. Um, it might have been something in there, because when you said that, it, it kind of connected. It might have been some of that in there behind the scenes. Um, but I think uh, my brothers, they went on a more traditional route in their careers. Um, they kind of followed that a little differently, but um, followed it. Um, but I think for me, I would say what I can agree with on that end is I know my dad and other people that I know that were more in a traditional way had other dreams. And to see them later in life, now trying to fit those in, them, into, them into their lives, it's much more difficult to do it later. It can be, it's very possible, Mary Kay did it and so many others, <laughs> but um, it's harder because you already have such a way established. I knew that I couldn't like do what he said, like, well, just do this and then go back to that. Well, that's what you did. And I couldn't say that to him, like, dad, that doesn't work. But I saw him do that and I saw maybe a, a certain discontentment with certain things that would have been different if he would have went another way, but he didn't have that opportunity. He had to establish what made my dreams possible. He had to establish the structure and so forth. So yeah, I think that's that's definitely something that kind of fits into what how it how it happened. Like the Jim Carrey documentary mm -hmm. where he talked about his dad and yeah. same thing. He wanted to provide for his family. He really cared for them. Yeah. But then to see his dad lose his job in mm -hmm. his like early fifties. Yeah. And he really wanted to be a musician, I, I guess. Right and, right. and how, and that really stayed with him. Yeah, that's it's it's something you'll never forget if it happens to you in a way that where your parents can show vulnerability when you're younger. It's it's a tough thing because kids usually see, see their parents as just strength. It's just strength, and then you kind of lose that fantasy later on. But I actually saw that happen, and I think for me, my dad um, is a truck driver for uh, for a company, but he also did real estate, and when the real estate market went kaput i mean he literally lost more than half his income within like it was immediate it was immediate for for most people and the prudence that my dad had he saved so much money 
we always lived way below our means. So it didn't affect him where he lost a house or anything. But I saw something of, this was the plan, the plan doesn't work. That's what I saw in his eyes. So the plan might not work, even the safe one. Why not go against the safe and just try it? Like, especially when you're younger, it's like, go for it, why not? So, yeah. Do you think that's where your courage to be an artist comes from? Mm, that's a good question. Um, I think courage is applied in all aspects. Um, I think courage for me and confidence comes from um, work. Uh, when you do things, you see you can do things and then you get confidence. And when you get confidence, you get more courage to go to the next level. Like, I'm not sure I can do that. Whenever I've done something I wasn't sure, sure of and then I can go forth and do more. Um, so playing sports young, uh, being the only girl and a bunch of bro brothers and cousins and all guys on my block <laughs> and getting to play football with them and then actually getting them like, whoa, she did it, she caught the ball when they thought I wouldn't. Like little things like that, I think all is a part of building a, a good foundation of confidence. And then you get to school and then you're like, oh, do I take the AP classes? Let me go ahead and try, you know, I might fail the first time, but then you do well and you're like, wow, you know what, next year I'm taking all AP classes or whatever it is, like little, little wins along the way. Um, I think help build our confidence, which ultimately builds the courage to walk off where you're not really sure what's next. Yeah. At what age did you start writing screenplays? Mm. Um, I started writing uh, stage plays first. Um, I wrote my first, I don't remember what exact age it was, but I helped write at, a ch at my church. I helped write something, I was probably about 10 or 12. Like in between that adolescent age, I helped like add some lines from a kid's perspective. And then I wrote my own screenplay first time in eighth grade. So I was about 14 years old. Um, the one that I put on stage, I did in high school. Um, that was the first time I did all of the stuff like stage manage, direct, write, all cast. I did that um, for my um, senior project. So I started beginning of 11th grade, the process and um, doing that and for it to be successful. <laughs> Like the whole school came out multiple days to watch it. And then they were like, hey, have another one. Then we can have one at night for the parents. You know, it was like a really good positive response to it. And I was like, oh, it was like, I did that. Like that really made me be fine with writing when I didn't have any paychecks because I knew I could do it. I just had to figure out my niche or find a space that I could work in. Do you remember the first screenplay you read? Oh, first screenplay I read. I would say first uh, stage play would be Shakespeare. I, would, I was obsessed with Shakespeare when I was like seventh grade. I was like obsessed. Um, and then after that, screenplays, um, I'm trying to remember the first. I'll say an early one. I read um, um, uh, Ben-Hur. I was trying to remember uh, oh, wow. which one. I, I read Ben-Hur, which is really odd. <laughs> but the reason was it, I was in the library. I spent a lot of time at the library and they had it as the, the, um, the, like a book on Ben-Hur, like the, the backstory or something. And then they had like a little catalog thing, you know, old library where you can go and find other things. They had a script, but it was on the, uh, the digital platform. Like we're, not digital, we're digital now, but whatever that thing is that we would look the and Michael see things. Fish? Yeah, yeah. Oh, uh -huh. okay. And they had <laughs> excerpts of Ben-Hur. It wasn't the full thing, but I got to read it and kind of see a movie I had seen a bunch of times. My mom always had us watch these movies, Ben-Hur and such. Um, a, a movie I, I saw, see on the page, and it kind of connected some dots for me, I think. And it wasn't something that was conscious for me in that moment, but I think thinking back, like reading that made me understand scripts a lot better, for sure, yeah. 
That's interesting. So you said you spent a lot of time at the library. Usually I think of more introverted people. You seem more like an extrovert. You love sports. You're comfortable around sort of the guys. What was it about the library where either you felt safe or what it, whatever it was? Um, <laughs> I'm laughing because so I spent a lot of time at the library because I couldn't go many other places. <laughs> like my mom, like she, it was certain places we could just go and have freedom. The library was one of them. So for a person, a kid that loved freedom, like, yeah, let me walk to the store. I'm ready. You know, that, you know, I, I knew I could go to the library and I didn't have to check in. It was just somewhere I could be. Um, and I love stories. So if I'm at the library, I still feel like I'm an extrovert because I'm, I'm interacting with a whole lot of people. They're in books, but, <laughs> but I'm interacting with a whole lot of people. And then I was like friends with the librarian. You know, I was that kid that would just <laughs> right. talk her ear off like in between reading. And it's like, okay, thanks. I have a lot of work to do. <laughs> so I was definitely talking to people as well, but then also interacting with characters in books. And um, I just loved the going through the catalog and finding things like something new, something random. Um, and I was really into animals. I still am, but like getting to read about different animals and plants and things like that was really cool to me. And it's just, I, I just felt like it was a whole world and I could just explore it and then go talk to the, the library about it. Yeah. <laughs> well, you said movies were sort of forbidden and maybe TV. Well, not forbidden, oh. very specific. Like it was like, she had these VHSs we could watch. And then if a new movie has come out, she had to like research it. She was very on it, like a very, very um, prudent parent. She wasn't very strict, like where we had a certain amount of time or anything like that. Well, TV, yes, we had like, like we can go over an hour or something like that. But she was more so the type of content we consumed. She was very, very conscious of that. She would say, watch what you take in your eyes because it's going in here. Like, you know, like very much understanding that that was developing something in us. And then she encouraged us to just be out. We spent a lot of time outside and a lot of scrapes and bruises and <laughs> silly, silly, silly um, breaking of bones because of it. But it was, it, it, I, I, my generation grew up in front of the TV and I see a difference in me because of that, which sometimes is a disconnect, but then also it's like, oh, I can hear what you're saying, but I also have a whole nother mindset because I just didn't get a lot of things fed to me. I had to go out and search for it. So I think that uh, her decisions were great. Um, but yeah, the library was a, a good place for us to kind of explore. How did you learn to write screenplays or stage plays? I don't think I ever learned it. Um, I think I, I don't think I ever learned to write screenplays or stage plays. I think I learned what was in a story that connected with people and then figured out how to put that into lines. Um, and I think that's really what it is. People go to school and they read these books. They're trying to just find out what a story is and then how to relay it. But I think um, consuming all types of content really is a, a thing that can teach you that in such a way. Because it's like, okay, I watch movies. I go to the movies multiple times a week. It's my, I don't watch TV, but I go to the movies all the time. But I'm watching the audience too. Like, what was the moment where they kind of leaned back and kind of settled in? Or what was the moment that they reacted to it well? Or kind of seemed a little disconnected out on their phones or whatever? Um, so yeah, stories connect with people. And if you know how to connect with people outside of writing, you can tell a story and that's everybody. So everyone has some level of connection to people. So they can translate that to a paper, then you're a writer. And I have learned to do that by doing it, doing it and, and hearing it and reading it and seeing it. Um, so reading scripts helps, yes, but you gotta see the outcome of that script so go watch the movie. And you have to see the reaction that the movie had on the people, so go to the movies and you become a better writer. I had an English teacher, Mr. Pomeroy in 10th grade back at Penwood 
in Lansdale, Pennsylvania. Um, and he said, people always say you become a better writer by reading. And he said, that's not true. You become a better writer by writing. And he would say to us every day into his class, he would say, write. That would be his first word when we got into the room. And we would write. And there it was the most amazing class. It was an AP class, and it was either you got an A or an F. Oh, wow. There was no grading <laughs> of the papers, nothing. It was either you did the work, you tried, you got an A. You didn't do the work, you're not trying, you get an F. So everyone in that class, they wrote. And we grew leaps and bounds without boundaries. It wasn't like, oh, am I getting a B? Or it was just writing. And that, that was very freeing. And I think that kind of gave me the mindset that I have um, now where if I want to be a better writer, I need to write. If I want to be a better whatever, I need to do it. So I applied that thing that uh, he told me. I think of him very fondly, very often, because um, he encouraged me in a way that was invaluable just to write and that it was good and that I could impact people with it. That's really interesting. So do you think just the fact that he had such a love for this, whereas maybe other parts of your life, movies had to be you know, inspected, you saw the freedom that he had with, with story and it just made you feel like you could be free with writing? I think the, the freedom my teacher gave me in writing could never be taken away. The reason I say that, the next year, 11th grade, I had the most, the teacher, it's like you have to do it this way, there's no way you wrote this right now. Like she would have us do these journal entries and she's like, oh no, you didn't just write this. And I'm like, that's, that's how my thoughts come out. And she's like, okay. It was just like a very negative space, but I didn't lose what he gave me. I just like, well, let me see how I can better interact with this woman that wants me to do this and this and this. But I knew that I, I already achieved it and I had already experienced it. So that ex experiential learning, I kept with me through that moment and beyond. So I still feel a sense of freedom. I think for me, sometimes I feel so much a producer does and we get so boggled down with task. So if I could just take a moment just to write some things down, so totally disconnected from work, I always feel better. And I think that's something that he taught us. Like you can free yourself because you're getting your thoughts out, you're getting your thoughts organized, even for anyone, not just writers. So anyone that wants to kind of just bring themselves back to center, writing is a great way to do it. Um, so that freedom, yes, he, he, he established it and it, def it definitely continued on and continues on um, today. And I try to give that to other people as well. So don't, before I tell them what not to do, like, just go. And that's in anything, like um, my wardrobe designer, my set designer, like, no, just express, go. Like, spend a day with it. Don't try to do it the way that fits into this. Just go for a day. And then some beautiful things could come out that might have been kind of pushed down um, by too much of a structure in a bad moment. You need the structure, because then I need to come and make sure you're productive and all these things, but let them go first. And then you'll be surprised at how many beautiful things come out. When you're writing a screenplay, do you start with an outline? I start with somewhat of an outline. Um, I need to know where I am and then where I'm going or where I just came from. So usually for me personally, um, when I'm starting to write, it's not coming from a, a, from a starting place. It's coming from a scene I already had. So I write that scene out. The most vivid thing about what I think about this idea, I write that scene out without any, it doesn't have to fit anywhere. I don't know where this is, but I just see these characters doing this at some point. So I start there, kind of, kind of get my groove going and start to like, yeah, I really feel this moment. I've seen this moment. I'm very, a very visual writer and a very, uh, when ideas come to me, they come to me almost as like a movie. Um, so I'm able to write that down. And then now I go to an outline because I don't, I don't even know where this is. So I know I'm here, but I don't know where this is in the story or anything like that. Um, so I just start with, okay, where's it ending? Where are we going? And then go from there. So I kind of 
in a very nonlinear way, <laughs> bounce about the outline. And then in the end, which the outline could take two months. I mean, in the end, I see it and I'm like, okay, now this is some type of map with the understanding that we can deviate from it. How many scripts would you say you've written, even if you haven't shown them to anyone? Ooh, good question. I have written from start to finish on my own five. Um, in a collaborative effort, I, I would have to sit here and count for a moment, <laughs> for a moment, because I've written on so many things and helped writers do so many things. So um, I, I'm not really sure how many that is. It's more than ten, um, but for uh, start to finish, um, it's five um, on my own, and then I have maybe about four unfinished ones, three or four unfinished. Yeah. What are the pros and cons of writing on your own and then writing with either another person or a group of people? Yeah, um, pros and cons of writing on your own versus a group, I think changes for everyone. But for me, I'm a producer too. So writing in a group is wonderful. Because if I can bounce ideas off of someone, not just in a way of like, hey, I'm thinking of this and then go write it. Hey, I'm thinking of this, that can affect what they are writing and vice versa. It's so much better because my brain, because I've, it just is what it is. I'm a producer. It will always go to a place that has nothing to do with the script. Like it'll always, it'll always creep in somewhere. But bouncing ideas off of someone, kind of vibing it out, that keep is that that keeps that at bay enough where I cannot think about a budget for a moment, or I cannot think about this is too many locations, you know, whatever it is. I can silence that productivity part of me and just like feel free to write if I have someone in the room or if I have someone I can bounce off of. And for me, and I know that can be achieved on your own. But for me, so far, it's been the best when I get to write in a group. Do you have a clear vision of the ending when you start a script? Or does it come to you as the story progresses? Um, I have an ending for not actually what happens, but how I want someone to feel. So if I want an audience to leave this feeling happy and like, wow, that was just, that just uplifted my day, I'm going to keep that in mind the whole time. But I might not have the scene that that goes with or how exactly we get there because he's characters we're dealing with in the moment are having an argument <laughs> or whatever it is. But if I want them to feel happy, I'm always keeping that in mind. So I have to leave little pieces of that throughout the film for us to get there. Um, so I would say, yes, I would know the ending of a film in, in, the, mo in the movie of like the mood or the feeling, but not necessarily how that happens. Yeah. You mentioned earlier uh, watching the audience, which I think is really fascinating because so many people are in their own world these days with the phone <laughs> and they barely look up at the screen sometimes. What what is that 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 do, do you when you see someone that's so entrenched in you can tell that it's really affecting them. I mean, I've sat next to people who are just sobbing in a film, and I was like, I don't know, should I say something to them? I feel bad for this person, but I know I'm going to let them be, you know. But seeing how cinema affects people, how does that affect you? Seeing wow. how it affects other people. Um, I'm very empathetic. I'm extremely empathetic, like to like almost, I'm not, I can't say a fault, but it's so affects me, so I have to put guards up for it. Sure. So um, seeing an audience being affected by art and film or any, any audience to anything, uh, even art, like in an art gallery, it affects me a lot. So if I look over and see someone like crying, I might cry. <laughs> so um, it affects me in a way that I can, almost by looking at them, feel what they're feeling and then, like I said, I can go back to the film and think, well, what about this made them cry? And then bring the logic into it. Like, wow, that made them cry. I have no idea. That means it's a personal thing. Like, they might have a personal situation that mirrors it because it's like a little thing. Wow, they're crying pretty aggressively for just, you know, this pretty calm moment. Or they, the, the writers and the filmmakers were able to put something in place to where we're building you to a place that you don't know it. And then it hits you from the side. And then you see a more aggressive cry than what you expect. Um, so I kind of try to 
then unpack that, like what happened here to get them to that place? Or um, it's a, the moment that's actually, actually happening right there. And what cinematography did they use to be able to free the person enough to not feel like they were in a, watching a movie? Because that's necessary for someone to cry in a way or laugh in a way that's kind of freeing. Um, they have to not feel like they're in a movie. So how the camera moved. Um, sometimes the camera's moving too much and the person's like, okay, like they're trying to follow something or they feel like I'm watching a movie rather than I'm, I feel engrossed. So maybe the camera kind of pushed in a little bit and you, you felt like you connected a little bit more with the character and you felt like, I understand them. Now I'm gonna cry <laughs> because they're sad or whatever it is that, that affects us in any emotional way. It's interesting too when people laugh and sometimes there's only just one person laughing at something and it's it's very telling, you know, and so it's interesting to see why people laugh at something. Yeah, comedy is tough. Um, getting reactions in comedy that are enough of a widespread to hit most of the audience because everyone thinks of comedy as different. Most people think of pretty much the same things as sad, scary, whatever, but funny, that's hard. We, have, we all have such different personalities and comedy, but yeah, comedy is tough. So watching audience ex uh, be impacted and laughing their heads off is always one of those moments for me, like I am totally gonna have to watch this movie again because I wanna see what's happening here. Like, you know, so I think watching comedies with a group of uh, uh, people um, that don't know that they're being watched is just so much fun for me. And it teaches, it teaches me a lot. Um, and I started in comedy. I mean, I have a psychological thriller right now and I'm doing a lot of drama, but um, I started um, writing like slapstick type stuff and making people laugh from theater. Um, so getting to watch it in a, in a film setting, a movie theater, it feels like theater. It's like they got it. Like going back to the, the church plays? Yeah, mm -hmm. church plays and community theater. I worked at a, a, a theater called Hedro Theater up in Pennsylvania, a little weird theater. Weird in a good way. Yeah. And um, that was my first experience with professional audiences and these you know, intellectuals that would come to see the theater and um, getting them to kind of loosen up, that, that moment was something that I looked for. It's like we knew what we were doing was right because it's that moment where everyone came to be seen or who's here and then all of a sudden they're like leaning in their chair or they're, you know, they're having a good time or, or they're just like leaning forward or whatever it is. That, that's the moment, that's when you have an audience and seeing it in theater makes it easier to understand it in film because there's no audience there. But it's okay, because I kind of get an audience. It's like, this moment needs to happen like this, or we need to bring this element into it before we get there, because we've already seen it so many times in a very one-on-one -on -one or uh, interactive experience with theater. Well, you had something happen, I believe, that's a writer's worst nightmare, and that is a script of yours was stolen? Yeah, I had a script stolen. Um, it was... I have two scenarios that you can say the word stolen, but the one that really, I think, affected me deeply was I trusted people that wanted me to write, and I was 19. This was my first like hire for um, film, like a film script that I'm being hired to write. And I worked with people that I really trusted, and they didn't do the wrong thing, but they didn't protect me to make sure the wrong thing didn't happen, or even ask me questions to make sure I was thinking of it. And um, the film, they told me originally, they were like, well, this is not really where we want to go. We'll circle back, you know, maybe a year from now because we're going to go with another idea. And I was like, okay, no problem. I enjoyed the experience. I got to write a, a film script start to finish and just kind of waited. And then I saw the film. Um, it was uh, maybe about two or three years later. And it was a little different, but it was, <laughs> it was like, that, okay, I wrote that line. You know, one of those moments. So I think it was a horrible experience, but 
I can't say I'm glad it happened, but a lot of goodness came out of it. It caused me to be so much more prudent and so much more watchful and wise, which is great for personal use, but then also being someone on the other end now, hiring writers and so forth, and even something I'm working on right now in pre-production, it's like, I wanna educate every young writer because it's something that no one's gonna, I can't say no one, but there, there aren't many people that are not going to want to use you for your gift, and that's a good thing, but you gotta make sure they're using you in a way that you're comfortable being used. So it's like, it's fine. Your gifts are here to be used and shown. So don't feel like, oh, they're using me, that's fine. But just put limits and, and boundaries on that, and that comes in with legal. So most of these young writers, most of them, unless they got into a place where they kind of shot up to the top, where they can have an agent and a lawyer and this and that, and somebody watching out for them, they have no clue what paperwork needs to be put in place and how that paperwork needs to be worded to where they're protected. And because of what I went through, I researched that. And I didn't just research it like, now I know, but I also always bounce off a lawyer. It's the, even when I'm giving advice, I'm like, hey, this guy's dealing with this. Is this does this clause mean this? Because that's what I'm thinking. Um, so just being very, very watchful of it. And also I'm like super protective of writers. Like it's like, uh, like it's like a mama bear thing that comes out and um, a project I'm working on right now, the writer just like called me just, just a couple days ago. Like, I just wanted to thank you. Like you have been there for me every step of the way. You weren't even on the project really yet. Cause this is like way before pre-production. This is just like conversations. And he was like, I just felt so safe. And I couldn't have had a better uh, compliment than that the writer that was around me felt safe because I experienced the other way around. So I wanna make sure that anyone in my presence, writers, producers, whatever it is, they feel safe and they feel that they can trust like I did, but then also get the outcome that their trust actually mattered and it was the right person to trust. And I never wanna like hurt that in someone. That's like something that I'm very mindful of and I don't think, there's, there's an opportunity for us to make bad decisions like every person has that saying like maybe greed or whatever the thing is that you see great people fall. When you have already experienced what great people do to when they like what they can do in power, when you've been on the other end of that, when you get some power, you're going to be more mindful of how you treat people. So I can say that that experience of having a, strip, a script stolen makes me a better leader, makes me a better producer, makes me a better writer, makes me a, me a better person because I know these people weren't bad people. But they saw an opportunity. They're like, well, we don't have to really pay her anymore. We don't have to really bring her in. She's not owed any points. Let's just go. Don't even tell her. Like, that can happen when you have greed. So I, I don't look at them. Um, I don't think of them as horrible people. I think of them as people that succumb to, to greed or um, because they could. You know, we all want a sense of power and they use it the wrong way. So it helps me use it in the right way um, more often and with more intention. What's, what are some tips aside from having legal look over a contract or even emails? What, what are some signs, like a red flag, that, that a, a young writer should be um, aware of? I think signs of um, red flags for young writers or any writer is people asking you for things that you, one, don't understand, or two, you didn't agree with already. So it's like, usually how it happens, they kind of sneak it in there. It's like, okay, we have an agreement. And then it's like, hey, can you also do such and such? And young writers especially, they're like, I can't wait to do these things. So they just do it. Don't do it. Be okay. Or even start writing it. Start working on it. But don't tell them. Don't say okay. Don't say, oh, absolutely. Just say, oh, sure. Just have whoever call me so we can just change the, change the contract. You can do it in such a way that doesn't seem like you're checking them. Just make it seem like you're just being helpful. Like, oh, you, I'll take care of it. I can talk to whoever. Let me know. Or do I need to sign something else? 
ask an innocent question like that and I tell you those people will adjust their movements. Just say, oh great, sure, do I need to sign something different? And they say no, that will be the next red flag that it's not only that they maybe were negligent, they were probably trying to take advantage of you because you do have to sign something. There needs to be an adjustment. And if they're not willing to do that, you don't need to be in the situation or stay in the situation because we know we got to be in places sometime where, okay, be amongst the snakes, but like the Bible says, be a dove. Like we don't need to act like the snakes, but we need to know how the snakes move. Be there and just keep very watch and care on what you are doing and presenting to them. So they're like, hey, where's that such and such? Oh yeah, I have it pretty much ready. I just need whatever paper I need to sign. So bring it up later. You don't have to fight them. You don't have to argue with them. You don't have to, I, I, I see another thing in young writers, they're like, I read that such and such, or my friend said such and such. And it's like, now you're just gonna come off as a jerk. And that person might've been innocent in the situation. So just come from an inquisitive place and then record that response. I'm not saying record every scenario or like have a, like a phone recorder or whatever, but after they responded, write it down so you can then think about it later and then talk it over with a friend. Um, of course, it's great to talk it over with someone in the industry, but even just hearing yourself out loud, talk to someone helps. You kind of understand where someone's moving. So write it down exactly what they said. Send a text to yourself. I do notes all day off phone calls. Even when I'm sitting on a call, I'm writing down certain moments in the call just to kind of, okay, what just happened here? Um, so I think just being mindful of like request and then seeing, just seeing, not responding, but seeing how they respond to you pushing back on their request in any capacity. And that will be a telltale sign that this probably is going to be a situation where people are not going to protect you. So you can stay in it, but just be ready to protect yourself or bring someone else in to protect you. I like that. Let's take the scenario of where the person tries to turn it around on you and make it almost seem like you're the one that's the problem. So let's suppose they say, well, I only operate with a handshake and I go on good faith like that and I would hope you would trust me. Well, now that makes you feel like, oh, wow, now I look like I'm mistrustful. So you would almost want to prove to them, okay, oh, that's fine, yeah, we'll, we'll do that. How do you, when they try to turn it around, as happened to a lot of people, and make it seem like it doesn't need to be changed or initialed or noted? I think first, um, first understand that your trust has to be rooted in truth. So trust is built. You don't owe anyone it. Like just have that stance. I don't owe trust to anyone. They have to build it and I have to build it for them. They don't have to trust me to go write and do my job. Don't act like, hey, I'm a writer. I've done such and such either. You have to come in humility, but trust has to be earned. Now you don't have to tell them that, but have that stance. So, so let's say someone says something like that where it's, well, I operate on a handshake and I hope you would trust me. Absolutely, I hope so too. So I'm gonna start writing on this and just expect that whenever you're ready, you're gonna give me a piece of paper or you're gonna put this in writing and then I can deliver it. It's just for me, man, it's so many people out here that you can trust, right? Like kind of connect with them, right? <laughs> and then they're like, what, what crazy person wouldn't be like, no, trust everyone, give them truth. That's why if your trust is rooted in truth and you stay in a place of truth, you won't come off as combative or difficult. Just stay in a place of truth. There's so many people out here, right? Yeah, I get it. Yeah, so for me, I'm gonna start moving, sure, but I just can't deliver anything until that piece of paper, only because I've seen so many crazy things happen. And I don't think that would be you. Like, you know, you have to put those things in there to alleviate, you know, something that could end up being conflict, but still, trust has to be earned. So let them earn it. And also have that same stance on you. If you're not making deadlines, if you're, you know, not giving them proofs of things and showing them the type of um, examples that they want or providing them with enough people that they can call and say, yeah, they're great. Whatever the case may be, don't be offended when they're not trusting you either. So you have to understand trust, you're not owed it and you don't owe it to anyone, but still operate in a space of 
by building it or for building it, I'm going to just kind of confront them with truth, not in confrontation in a negative way. So I would say that's the way to deal with it. Just kind of respond very graciously, but also then bring them a truth that they can't disagree with, which is there's a lot of crazy things happening here, right? And then go from there. Something that keeps coming up in our interview today is like people skills and just working with people. And it sounds like you've really worked on yourself. You've worked on reading. I know you've said that in prior interviews that some books on leadership are more important than actually film books. And I find that very interesting because most people would do the opposite. Yeah, I think um, we're in a business of, with people. This is a team sport. I'll say with football, like football is a team sport. Even with Tom Brady, he needs these receivers. He needs a college spread offense. He needs whatever he needs to make this happen. So with film, you are dealing with people. I don't care if you're the most brilliant savant in the world. At some point, you're going to have to deal with people. So for that reason, anyone in the, in the industry, especially producers, especially um, writers, because you have to be able to convey your thoughts and ideas and not just you know, hold it in here and only do it on paper. You have to actually talk some time. Um, just working on your people's skills in a way that is uh, practical, reading, um, going to conferences, hearing things, listening to, to audios, things like that. Um, I read uh, leadership books for, far more than I read entertainment books or film books or screenwriting books. And the reason is I can, of course, become a better writer or a better producer or better filmmaker by learning the X's and O's, just like in film, um, I'm sorry, just like in, in football, but how am I going to get this team to operate right? Or how am I going to get myself to operate within that team correctly? That's a people skill. So if you build that, the rest of it can be worked on, it can be, be forged in practice, but you come into a situation you have not practiced and you have not built that people skill, you're going to disqualify yourself before you even get to show your art and get to show how brilliant you are and all the stories inside of you. So many people, I don't, I don't think failure usually comes from people that have, don't have the ability. But it usually comes because they didn't have the emotional IQ to handle the pressure, the conflict, the anything that can impede success is usually a personal issue. It's not because you didn't know. Not knowing something, I mean, we're in an informational age. You can Google anything. <laughs> so with all this information at our fingertips and people are still dropping off like, in such a bad way. They cheat on their wife. It's a horrible, like, it's like an expo. If you're on every channel, you've done such and such, or you treated your employees bad and they're all blogging about it. The New York Post now has an op-ed from your CEO or whatever that just quit. Whatever happens, that's not because they didn't have the ability in their business, in their enterprise. So it's, they're filing because of a personal problem. So if you work on yourself, you can be better in any industry, especially ours, because it truly is a team effort. And as creatives, we, we, we wanna flow and have the freedom to create, but it's like to have freedom, if you don't have the money, because money also operates the same, but to have freedom, the only way is for someone to open a door for you and not close those doors in your face. That's how we get freedom. That's why Christopher Nolan can make whatever he wants because he was able to put himself in a place, not just to be brilliant, because there's so many brilliant people that are Christopher Nolan's age, that had the same schooling, but they're not Christopher Nolan. He did something to where teams and people at opportune times open doors for him where he could freely create. And I don't think that only comes with brilliance because I know so many brilliant people that are like not doing anything with their life or even stuck in some little office somewhere wishing that they could create. So yeah, for the doors to open, you either need a boatload of money for mommy and daddy or you need to have people skills in some capacity. So working on that is very important. 
Was there an example that you saw of someone, and you don't really have to name their name, but where you just saw how they handled something and it was so brilliant how they diffused mm. the situation? Because we know film sets, it's a long day, or even if it's just an email, people, they get sensitive and they get mad and maybe they take things the wrong way or they're not, I know we talked about people not knowing the word no or they can't handle the word no, you know, which is interesting when you say that to someone and you see how they react. But did you ever see someone where they just, they handled it brilliantly and you were like, wow, I want to be like that. Yeah, um, for me, the first example was a negative one on film sets, watching producers specifically be horrible to people and they led and they motivated through fear and paychecks. That's the motivation. I'm paying you, work, or you're scared of me, work, or you're intimidated, or whatever it is. So it's like the producers come and set, everybody's all of a sudden like, okay, or the AD is just like cursing you out instead of just yelling, hey, I need you guys to do X, Y, and Z for this day to go forward, whatever it is. So I saw the negative part of it, but as a child, I saw the positive, and then I also had the opportunity and the blessing to know Chad Morton, um, my executive producer on the last film I did. He is the money guy, but yet he is the nicest person. And also we had a situation in another project where someone cheated us. Like they were submitting work, um, artwork that was stolen. Um, oh. It was totally not, they were submitting these things that were not theirs and we found out about it. And the way he handled it was so amazing to me. I was ready to rip this girl's head off. Like <laughs> how could she, she could have ruined everything. Cause I was like, if these got out, we could have been sued and all this crazy stuff. And he had a conversation with her and I was, I was with him. And um, she fought him vehemently and said negative things to him and just was horrible. And he said, I'm sorry you feel that way. The only thing I'm here for is to tell you, you won't be working with us anymore. And I hope you don't do this with anyone else. I wish you all the best. And he didn't even respond to the negativity. And we went about our business. And I was like, that's it? You're not gonna rip a new one? <laughs> like, you're not gonna sue her? And it was like, he said something to me. I can't even remember the exact words, but he didn't wanna let that negativity go any further than what it already did. We experienced something that was very real. We, we had to get in front of it and we had to deal with it. We dealt with it. We got rid of her, we got rid of her artwork, we wasted money. She wasn't giving that money back. We had already paid her and everything. But if he continued to dwell on it and complain about it and continue to try and get money from her that he, he wasn't getting this money, then now we're still in a negative space two, three weeks from now, a month from now, when we could have just went about our business and solved more problems, found more artwork or whatever it was. So I think that for something that I learned from Chad, just kind of like, let things be a little bit more easy and rub off, like roll off your shoulders um, in a place of grace and in a place of like selfishness. Like, I don't wanna take this negativity with me today. I hear what you're doing. I'm not even gonna to respond to a negative. I'm gonna correct the problem just logically and then walk away. Um, and then on the flip side of that, um, watching film producers, ADs, et cetera, rule in a fearful or just I'm paying you do your work type way I had already, as a child, from my pastor, my dad, different people in my life saw leadership without that, without the negativity, servant leadership. So that's how I, my leadership, it fits more into the servant leadership mindset, where I'll just give you a quick little baby story. My pastor, like, he would be the guy, this is the pastor, right? Like, he's sweeping when we came into the, to the church. He's sweeping up things, and um, this other gentleman walked up and was like, Pastor, no, 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 let me do that. Please don't ever do that. So he took it from him, and he walked away, and I was, a little inquisitive girl that just saw this moment. I was like, why did you want to sweep? And he's like, it's not that, it's just, it had to be done. And it wasn't even a big deal to him. He's like, it had to be done. I had some time. And, and it was like, oh. And I think just being a kid seeing that, or like my dad who was my coach in soccer, like he just always led with not put downs, he led with positivity. And then also he led with 
the idea that let me make you better. Like, let me make you better. So I'm gonna be really hard on you, but I'm coming because I care about you. I'm gonna make you better. So when you go to the next level, you're better. Like, let me do that for you. And he would say that to the kids like, hey, I'm only talking to you because you're messing up, but I can help you because I've already done it. So that's the, the, the stance I have with anyone that works with me, for me, in any, with like any capacity. I wanna make everybody in the room better and vice versa. They're gonna make me better too. They're gonna grow me, especially if they have a bad attitude. You're gonna work so hard to get to that person in a way that kind of diffuses that. You're gonna be better. Now I can, on the next one, I mean, attitudes don't mean anything to me. Someone that has a negative connotate, like uh, con uh, continence about them, countenance, excuse me, I'm like, oh, this is easy. I'm ready for that. Like I've experienced like the most like dramatic and negative people on sets. And it's like, oh, we're fine. So they, they it's, it, don't panic. I saw such negative um, motivations on set, uh, negative, um, you know, put down or stay in your place or whatever. And I saw the outcome of that, which was a great movie, but also the people were not happy. So it could have been even greater. And I really believe that when you are working with a team, if you make everyone feel comfortable, but also high expectation, like you're cared for, but you have a high expectation, I found that that's the best fit for me to motivate. So yeah, Rachel expects this from you and you feel like you only could do this, but I see that in you. I'm not just gonna be like, do this. I'm gonna say, let me help you get there. And I learned that from my father. It's like, let me help you get better. Let me help you. But I'm not gonna take, oh, I can't do it or, this is what I have to offer. No, I'm not taking that, but I care so much about you. I'm gonna stay up tonight and talk to you on the phone and we're gonna go through all that you just worked on yesterday. And I'm not gonna sleep and I'm fine with that because I wanna help you get better. So um, that idea I think was fashioned in front of me as a child and I apply it. But the, the real issue is in film, that's the usual case is the, the adverse. And we've learned though, like me going on to set, if I hadn't had any other idea that it could actually work in a big way, without that, then I'm thinking, oh, when I get there, I have to leave with the iron fist or they won't do their jobs. Now, I do believe that high expectations is so necessary for people to grow, I do. But an iron fist isn't, because you're, you'll never be able to motivate someone past self-motivation, because you're only trying to match what is inside of them. So whatever's inside of them can go further than you can push them to, if you can unlock it instead of pounding it. So it's like, unlock that person and they'll work harder. And I learned that actually from my hands in producing events, not film. And, I, and that's another thing for producers. It's great that you produce film, but have you had any form of leadership in your life other than film? And I think for me that, that, that gave me a balance. So the leadership was in sports, being a captain on the team or something, but also producing events because, okay, I'm in an event like the US Open or whatever, and these people, the, the client is saying, these people are lazy, they're not smiling, they're not this, they're not that. And then finding out, instead of just firing a person, are they being utilized in a place that fits their personality? That person's not a greeter. <laughs> that person is an extrovert and you're telling them, right. you're saying they have a bad attitude because you sat them at an information desk and they're the person that should be working over there helping out with tech or whatever it is. So finding places, so no, knowing that part of it, it's not the same in film, you can't say, oh, let's try unit production manager today. But you can realize that that person wants to do this. If you're on a film set, you want to do it in some capacity. Maybe they want to be a director and they're just a PA, but they want to be here. So why we have an opportunity to do the best kind of leadership because in other corporations, you got to deal with, I do not want to be here. I don't care about Coca-Cola or whatever the thing is. I care, but everyone in film, they care about film. They like movies. So use that. What is it about you? And this is what I do when I first bring someone onto my team. What's your dreams in this business? What are your goals? 
And even just hearing that kind of gives you an idea. So when you see that person underperforming in something that they want for life, you have to know it's not because they're lazy, it's because their motivations are off or they don't feel empowered enough or they're not able to verbalize something that's bothering them. So don't panic when you see a negative thing and start cursing everybody out or thinking that's the only way to handle it. In a war type mentality, like day of, you have to handle it quickly. But then you can always circle back. Because even if I have to be like, guys, this is happening, move. That's different than guys move, move, something's happening, move, and I haven't connected with you the day before. I didn't connect with you after the film. You have to establish care first to then give advice, power, push, motivation. Because if I haven't showed them that, they're not gonna respond to me with anything but fear, like we talked about motivating in fear, or, oh, well, I gotta get paid, so let me just go ahead. So I, I'm limiting their input and their initiative in a situation that I need it. I need them to be excited to be here. I need them to want to do it. So why not help them do it? As leaders, we sometimes act like, oh, these people are lazy, oh, they're negative. Well, change it. What about the, the culture of your set? Or what about the culture of how you hire them tells them that you don't care? So they're, yeah, they're bringing that to the, to the set. I don't care. They do care. They're in film. <laughs> they want to be in film, so they care. So I have that understanding. Don't panic when you see a negative response. And take ownership in that. Be a servant leader. Take ownership that, well, maybe there's something I could do on my end. And if there isn't, because sometimes it's totally the person, I'm going to confront it in a way that lets them know it's not just the action that's going to cause us a problem. You're hurting the team. You're hurting yourself. And guess what? Next time, I might not be able to bring you on. And if I don't bring you on and I care about you, what's going to happen for the guy that doesn't? They're not even going to be bothered with you. So let me help you. What's the problem? Let me help you through it. And then we can, we can achieve something better rather than just like, oh, these idiots or whatever the place you could come from that I see happen on sets all the time. What makes a great story? Ooh, what makes a great story? Um, I think ultimately if it evokes an emotional response, Whatever that emotion is, whether it be elation, sadness, fear, if it evokes an emotion, it's a great story. Now, how that happens is so many things and so many things, but it has to evoke something. Because if not, the, the people leave feeling like, okay, that was smart. Like, you know, like, <laughs> it could be brilliant, but did they feel anything from it? So I think if it, if it evokes an emotion um, through the story, not just a random, you know, through the story evoking emotion, it's a good story. Have you watched a film where you could tell other people weren't into it, but you were, or vice versa, it was one that was recommended, the critics all loved it, and you're like, yeah, I just, it didn't get to me right here. Yeah, it normally happens the other way around where I'm like, this was awesome, and people are like, Ugh, I didn't get anything from it. I'm like, what? Um, but yeah, sometimes where you hear all this, these things about a movie, people love it, and I'm like, oh, this is all right. Usually it's something that's very niche. So in this day and age where things can go viral like that, it's like it's just boom, everyone loves it. But it's usually a core group of people loved it and they spread it because they were so excited about it because it, it felt it fit a certain niche that they're in. And then other people will follow because people are sheep, the masses follow the masses and they're like, oh, it's great. And then it's great, it's great, it's great, it's great. And it gets to be this huge thing. And then someone coming into it, they're like, um, it's okay. But it's, it wasn't their niche. And most of the people that are watching it and saying it's great, it's probably not their niche. They're just they're grabbing onto the truth that someone else told them and they're going into it with expectations and bringing their own, like someone else's excitement into the, into the room. So I found that usually when a story doesn't necessarily connect with me or wow me and some people are really excited, it's a personal thing. Like maybe, um, I know this one movie I watched and 
uh, I cried on it. Like, and I don't cry on a lot of movies, but I cried. And I was like reading reviews and they're like, it was disconnected. It didn't talk to the audience. I, you know, it was just bashing the connection part, which I'm like, I cried. But I realized I had a personal thing that connected with that movie. So for me, it was a great movie. So that's all we need to do as writers, producers, filmmakers. We only need to connect with the audience and we need to connect in a wide, a wide enough space for people to love it. And then we have a story, we have a movie. What takes you out of a film? What ruins a story for you? Um, for me, it's tough when I feel like a lack of authenticity in a, in a project or, or film or script. Um, that can take me out of it. I can just, it's kind of just, okay. Because they, they maybe said something, the actor said something, um, the character is speaking, and I know, I just met the character for like a whole 30 minutes. That doesn't fit what they're doing. That doesn't fit what they're saying. So I felt like they tried to push a narrative or push something because it felt right for or fun for the project. But it's like, but you just introduced me to the character to be something different. And if a character steps out of themselves and acts in a way that's completely off the way they should act or the way they uh, um, are prone to act, there should be something that tells me that there's an opportunity for that to happen. So a man that is so loving and kind, then all of a sudden is mean to his wife. I'm like, oh my gosh, what's happening? Rather than like, okay. <laughs> so I have to stay connected by proof and truth. So we stay authentic in stories we, we, if we come from a place of truth. And for a writer that's knowing the, act, I mean, the, the characters that you're writing and knowing what they would say, for a producer, it's keeping an eye on the full picture, watching it and making sure everything fits into that from what the character is wearing, all these things. You can't hire a wardrobe designer that doesn't think about, okay, this guy is a blue collar guy. We need a lot more wear and tear on his clothes. That could take me out in the moment. It's like, okay, that guy's jacket is very fresh. <laughs> I'm out. And I don't blame the, the, just the, the wardrobe designer on that. I blame the producer. Because if you see these things, you're keeping an eye on everything. And uh, the UPM and all these people, like you're tracking people, you should know that something is off here and it should be adjusted and there should be conversations about it. The director should be talking to your creative team on a regular basis, and they do, they all do, to where you understand that everything I'm telling you about the story I know, the director, you're gonna take the story and then apply it to your niche. So the production design, it shouldn't be bright and colorful if we're about to go into a dark space. Like, let's bring it down, let's get some real material in there, let's not have a lot of, you know, brand new type materials, let's get some wood in there, let's get some, some metal in the scene, or whatever it is. Like, I want everyone to have that same vision and then apply it. So producer, make sure your director has a vision and make sure they know how to convey it. And if they're not conveying it, step in and, and make sure you, you're intervening and making sure that he's able to do it or she's able to do that. And then on the writer's side, the same thing. Do you know your characters? You're pitching a story to me. You want me to get finance. Tell me about the characters. Oh, well, in the script they do, no, not what they do in the script. Tell me about them. Like, tell me about their lives. So then I'm, when I'm reading the script, red flag, nope, you just told me that that guy is like really uh, narcissistic. You told me that when I met you. And now I'm reading this care moment. Why is he having a care moment? You didn't prove it. Well, it's care because this is the moment where he changes. Okay, prove it. Show me so that the audience doesn't feel disconnected. So I think with easily, you can pull an audience out by not remaining authentic in any capacity. Writing, production design, wardrobe, hair, makeup, anything. It all needs to be with the director's vision in mind. And that director should have a very strong vision that can be applied throughout. And that's the producer's job to make sure it happens. What's the idea behind what death leaves behind? Uh, the idea um, is based on a true story. Um, inspired by a true story. And Chad Morton, my executive producer, he came up with the idea because his cousin um, had a kidney transplant 
after that kidney transplant, he started to have nightmares immediately. Actually, he had his first one in the hospital directly after the um, transplant. And those nightmares were graphic and they were horrific. Um, it was a man and a woman beating on each other and it was like very much not something that connects with his life. Usually you dream in something that's somewhat connected to something that we've experienced and it's just so far from him. He's like this happy-go-lucky guy and he kept having these dreams every night. So having those dreams, he called his cousin, Chad, and started telling him, hey, can you stay up with me? Can we just talk? And he's like, okay, I'll talk. Uh, I know you just had surgery. But then it just became ridiculous and Chad kind of probed and here we are. We found out about these dreams. Chad told me about it. He had an idea to make it into a movie. I was like, it sounds awesome. And he wrote the first script that we um, inspired everything that we did from there. You started working on the script once it had already been developed or you were writing it fresh? Um, that's a good question. So Chad wrote the first draft um, with Nico Giampertro and it was a really good, more campy horror type film. And when this was, I was already on it. I was the producer from, the, from day one, even before Chad wrote it. But um, when they first submitted the first script, um, we knew we needed to make some adjustments to get us to where we were. And Nico brought a lot of adjustments into Chad's idea because Chad was so close to the subject matter. So he had a lot of reality to it. And also he had a, a little bit of a boundary because it's your cousin. Like, how can you write your cousin doing a bad thing or reacting negatively? You, you, it's kind of like we go back to that being authentic. Like, it wasn't as authentic as someone dealing with something so drastic. So we had to go deeper. And so from where Chad um, brought it and Nico elevated it, Scott and I, the director, was my co-writer. Like we were in the trenches together and we wrote what you now see in the film. And a lot of Chad's original words are still in there, original lines, just applied differently. And um, we even, while writing together, Scott and I would call Chad up and say, hey, because he's a father of five boys. Oh I have God. one son, Scott has no kids. So I'm like, this is an older situation, he has some older kids. Hey, wh how would you say this? What would you do? And he just write and send it to us. So we, it was a very collaborative effort um, and it kind of was birthed in a very organic way. Um, I enjoyed that process, that organic birthing of this thing. We, no one really had like a, you're this writer, you're that. It just kind of worked out. And then another thing we uh, realized along the way, especially Scott and I, I spoke from certain characters uh, in, a, in a way that was better than him. And he definitely spoke from a certain character, the main character especially, far better than I could. So it was like one of those things where I could write a whole scene and he'd be like, great. And then he'd rewrite all of his lines. And it really was like shortening them, <laughs> like less. Because he, his, his perspective, and I adapted it like, man, that's awesome, was that this character was dealing with so, so much internal turmoil he wouldn't be saying that much even in that moment. Take it back even more. So we all had the idea of uh, Jake, the character, the main character and what definitely is behind, should speak less. But I didn't, I didn't even speak less enough for, to get what we wanted. So he would take away, take away, adjust. And same for me, like certain characters of his, it was like, oh, she'd go a little deeper. And it wasn't always like a man-woman thing. It was like um, a more um, vulnerable, less vulnerable thing. So the men in a very vulnerable space would be maybe something I'm tweaking. Or the woman when she's like bringing it, she's like going in on her husband. I'm writing it because I'm married, but then Scott was like, what if she says this? I was like, ooh, that's ugly, ooh. <laughs> you know, so it was a very organic space. Um, we wrote it together, all of us, but it also was a very, um, we all brought our own self to it um, in, a, in a very interesting way. How long did that rewrite process take? 
Oh, that's a hard one. We were writing, um, <laughs> we were writing the script even in production. We had a script totally done, but we would literally, maybe a week before we're, we're gonna film the scene, need to adjust it because the beauty of what an actor brought last week. And I say that because we had veteran actors in our film and we, this was our first feature, like our very first one doing it at this level. And how can we then tell that actor that was too much emotion? We just had to make sure we proved it. We had to make sure we built something in that would adjust it or whatever. So yeah, we wrote, the, the draft that we came up with was like pretty quick. Um, I would say less than a month, but the tweaking and the changing, I mean, it happened up all the way through production, to be honest. Like it was just, it was an ongoing process. A night before one scene, I actually was writing and going back and forth with the actor about it. That's how free it was. Cause he's like, well, um, actually that one was actually Shira Barton. Shira Barton, I was like, hey, and she's married too. I was like, this is where it is. And she's like, you know what? I was thinking, and you know, we're pulling from our own little moments with our husbands and then expanding upon it. And she said that and I was like, you're right. Do, 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 do. Change it. <laughs> and before we were even at set, you know, they, they can improv and things, but this is not an improv thing. This is like, what's your motivation? You're coming from a different angle. We're changing angles, which will change lines. So she had totally, she was amazing. She will learn those lines like that. And the next day she's doing it. And that happened with quite a few of them. And then Vincent Young, he would change the script on his own, like at, at set. And it was better than what we wrote. So now that's how we're filming it. Now, of course, you now got to make sure he got all the elements, but just the way he delivered it was just so much better because he just really settled into his character, Andrew, in such a way that was just, it was just so organic. He just kind of became him. So he would say things. I'm like, I didn't write that. Like, but that's good. Go ahead. <laughs> you know? So Scott, our director, he just, I mean, he was so secure in his vision where he let everyone feel free to bring themselves into it in a way that was just free flowing to where everyone can feel free to move within this structure of where we're going. So I, I can commend Scott for that because I think a lot of times directors or any creative, of course, we're so passionate about our vision, but we can be so passionate about our vision where we don't see that a vision is not a, a square cube. It's a fluid thing. It moves, it shapes. Our visions change every day. So if you're creative, you know that you can be inspired and shift. So of course you can be inspired and shift from people too. So allow the actors, of course, have a, a, a culture where on set there is a boss. Scott is the boss here. We have a director. If he says this, that's what we're going with. But before that, what are you missing on set when you shut everybody down before you were able to let them have the experience of like, hey, I was thinking of this or whatever. So we were able to do that with this film, which I, I really think that the actors appreciated it. And we were able to do it because we're so small too. Because sometimes you have a studio that's like, uh-uh, this is what we approved. So we didn't have that. So when we're smaller, yes, it's harder because you're like, counting pennies and you're moving this to have that and you're uh, taking away from that to pay this. But then you have freedom to say yes a lot more without saying, okay, give me one second and calling up eight people to get to a yes or a no. When we were talking about outlining earlier and you said that you don't necessarily have an ending in mind, but you know how you want the audience to feel, which I thought was great. So that, that's sort of your ending point. With what death leaves behind, what did you want the audience to feel? For me, what definitely is behind was my job was to capture what Chad originally felt when hearing these stories, which wasn't pleasant. You hear, have someone calling you and you're, they're telling you the most horrific things they've ever seen and it's in a, in a dream, okay, but you're having this dream every time you go to sleep. 
So that feeling that's, that Chad had and then told me about, and then I had that feeling, that's the feeling we needed to give the audience. I don't necessarily want to make someone feel bad, but it's not gonna feel like, wow, it's gonna feel like, oh my gosh, or, oh, okay. Like it's, it's, it's a feeling of tense, it's a feeling of unsure, it's a feeling of care and empathy. It's so much into that, it's layers of the feeling that you leave with. And so much so where when we were on our festival run, we would have Q and A's that were supposed to be 10 minutes or 15 minutes. They would be 45 minutes long and the theater is kicking us out because people just, the empathy that we saw for these characters was amazing. And, I, and it's not just like, wow, we did it, we wrote, but it's like, this deals with a lot of real issues, our movie. It's, it's an entertaining psychological thriller. It's gonna make you feel you know, suspense and have you guessing and the mystery of it, trying to unveil and it has a Hitchcock ending, but also there's real elements. There's um, domestic violence in the dream. There's um, kidney um, and dialysis issues. There's transplant issues that are very real for, I mean, America especially, like we have so many people waiting for transplants and dying. Like it's like, these are morbid things that are real, but also we're enter entertaining. So I wanted them to feel entertained, but I also want them to feel a, a, a sense of, responsibility and a sense of I care for that person on screen so if I interact with someone that's going through any of these things I might interact with them a little different with a little more empathy with a little bit more care with a little bit more understanding so I wanted them to feel that and I think Scott really directed in a way that brought us to that moment and we've seen so many like I said we were we won 17 awards so in the festival run and now we're starting our theatrical run but the awards are nice, but it was like, getting to interact with people at film festivals is amazing. It's like, whoa, I knew we did something, but it's like, this person is telling me their personal business at a Q&A in front of people. How does that happen? Because there feels like a safe space where we, we dealt with some really tough issues in a way that was, of course, entertaining, but also we dealt with it with a lot of care, like dialysis and uh, kidney transplants. We, we had real, I, I actually casted real nurses on set to be the nurses, just so we knew we got it right. So it's like, we have people like, I've never seen a film where I felt that they really handled dialysis right. And like, whoa, that's because we brought a renal nurse in to tell us how to do that. So we trusted our vision, but we also trusted the people that we brought in to kind of guide us through those moments of sensitive subjects. And Erin O'Brien plays the woman being abused in the dreams. And she just brought just a strength and a vulnerability at the same time that was amazing. Amazing to see on set and then to watch it on film. Um, and she handled that because she actually dug in and like communicated with people that went through it. Domestic violence, it wasn't like a caricature, like, oh, you're hurting me. It was like strength and fight and grit, but also she didn't make a decision in the film that would have maybe brought her a sense of peace because she's, she's abused. So anyone that's, we're people, we don't want to be hurt. Like babies right away, they feel uncomfortable, they cry. We don't deal with hurt and pain. We want to get away from it. So if someone's staying in a place of hurt, there's something happening here. And it's usually control or whatever. So she was able to bring that without us talking about it. It was not a domestic violence film. But if someone's dealing with that in the audience, they see it as truth because that's exactly what that woman, that man, whatever is dealing with. And they see it portrayed in a way that's very authentic. And I, I think that that was just a really good takeaway for us as filmmakers. Yes, we want to entertain. We want all these people to go see it. We want people to buy tickets. We want people to download a VOD. But also it's like, we want them to like, feel something that is something that they can take with them. And I think that that's what we achieved. If nothing else, we achieved that with What Death Leaves Behind.
and I don't know if the word underdog is the right term, but it's the main character trying to convince the medical community that this is really happening because they're sort of labeling him as, as he's crazy or it's his medication side effects. Yeah, so we deal with cell memory. Oh, I'm sorry. Yes, we do. We deal with cell memory theory in the film and the idea that this guy is dealing with it and no one really takes him serious. They're like, you have a kidney. You're more healthy. Be happy. And he's like, I'm not happy. I'm having dreams. I'm scared. I think something's wrong here. And you can apply that to something like cell memory theory and it's very much a moment of controversy and people don't agree or they agree and it's a scientific theory, but just apply it to normal life. We do this to our friends and our family so often where we don't take what their own personal journey serious enough. And we have suicides and all these crazy things that happen, but if someone knows that I care about you and even though I don't really vibe or can relate to the, what you're going through, I'm going to open myself up and at least believe you and give validation because we all search for that. We need validation in what we experience. So just to say, I don't believe you, right off the bat is so disconnecting. So for, for Jake in the movie, that was the problem. No one believed him. And that ultimately started him on the road of a spiral down to the ending. So it's like, I think that that's a, a telltale sign in our lives when we see a person dealing with something, just, just to be a little bit more open to something that's not necessarily your, your thing and um, take it more serious. Um, we actually had someone in a Q&A tell us that, like, hey, watching this helped me understand my brother better, who was dealing with some depression, which is not really something we deal with in the movie, but mental health really is attached to it because even though he has a very physical problem, the way he handles it is a mental problem. Because just because you have a physical problem doesn't mean, you know, you see so many people, they break their legs or they lose their legs, and they're like champions. But then you see someone else that never got over it and, you know, took too much medication and eventually just kind of lived their life out. So it's a mental problem, it's not a physical problem. So Jake had a very mental problem, started with a physical situation that probably brought it up. It wasn't that the mental problem was from physical, but it will bring it up in a way that would cause this man that was very secure in his life to feel vulnerable because then he loses his health at a young age. He loses his family, he loses his wife. These things, what man wouldn't react negative in that moment? So if you can see him react negative and you've already established that you're empathetic to Jake, then when you see him act crazy or act like, paranoid and start doing crazy things in the film, it's entertaining and you're like, whoa, he's crazy, he lost it. But then also, when you see your family member kind of act out and snap at th Thanksgiving dinner, you're not like, they're crazy, get them out of here. You're like, wait, what's happening here? Just kind of being a little bit more open to, to that idea that there's something happening. Deal with that rather than shunning the person. What five things does a screenplay have to have to make you interested in being a producer for it? Five things a screenplay has to have to make me feel interested. For one, like I said, emotional response. Like, I need to know how I feel after I read it. If I feel like, what was I supposed to feel? Now there's, you gotta go back to your drawing board. Um, so yes, uh, you have to know, the, the feeling. The feeling needs to be there. Some, something, some type of feeling at the end of it. The other thing is a true identity in what genre it is. And if not, it's okay, because I can, I can do that, I can help with that. But if the person doesn't know what genre they're in, it's not that you have to play by the rules, but you need to know the rules before you break them. And they're telling me, oh, I just made this awesome horror film. And I'm like, this is hilarious. Like, <laughs> I just watched it. And horror and comedy can inter intertwine, but it's like, you're gonna break a rule here. Let me make sure this is what you meant by this. Like, so I, it needs to have a really strong identity in its genre. Um, another thing it needs to have is somebody that's either, I can't say rooting for, 
but someone that a mass audience, like most people can connect with. Um, we're in a time where, you know, people are a little bit more open to different things. So I think that's, that's something that we're kind of having to like test the, the thermometer on like, where are we as a culture? Like what is now accepted or whatever, but you have a good idea just from living life and watching the news, like what people accept or scroll through social media. <laughs> you could get an idea of how they connect with things and, um, uh, how they, they see things. So if, if I have no one in that film that I see myself in, there's a problem because I can see myself in a lot of ways. I'm very versatile. I don't think I'm like this person that has to only see this and only see that. So if I don't see something that I can connect with, we're, we're missing something. So a connection to a character doesn't have to be the main character, but a connection to a character in a way that brings a person in where like, okay, that could be my buddy. Yeah, I would say that too, or whatever. If it's so far off and like overly avant-garde or artsy, I just need to be told then this is what that's supposed to be. And then, all right, great. You want to make it? Here's a little teeny budget. <laughs> and I'll help you get into some weird festivals. Like, you know, and they're like, no, I want this to be on every, you know, theater. And I'm like, well, we can't work together <laughs> because that's not going to work. So, yeah, as long as as long as it has um, someone to connect, connect to. And it actually, actually kind of brought me to the other point. Um, the first thing I ask a person before we I even read their script is, where do you see this going? And that kind of tells me, and it's funny, someone's always like, oh, I never thought of that. And I'm like, well, you know, <laughs> you have to know where you're going to know how to do it. You have to know where you're going to know where to move and where to focus on and where to face. So if they don't know where this, if they wanted to go, that's going to make my job a little harder. Now I can read it and be like, ooh, this can do this, but at least let me know where you see it. And then when I'm reading it, I can kind of say, yeah, you got it or you don't. And are you fine with not having that? You would have this outcome. Are you good with that? Yeah, you know what I am. Great. Or no, I'm not. Well, you're going to have to go back to this, rewrite it, have much less location so we can get you a bigger star because this thing is not going to sell. You know, like something like that. So, um, yes, a, a good, I guess that would be direction, a good focus point of uh, where they want it to go. That helps me. And then I guess for number five, um, it has to be relevant to the immediate culture. That doesn't mean it needs to be happening, but just relevant. For instance, I think some movies that were so good that didn't do well, it was like, if they just waited a couple more years, it would have worked. Because we were moving to that, but this guy has a very strong opinion on it, this director or this writer or whatever. So if he's gonna come with this opinion, it's gonna kind of disconnect and people are not gonna spread it or uh, financiers are not gonna get down with it or, um, you know, the distributor won't readily just open the door. They'll probably throw it on Netflix somewhere and bury it or whatever. It's because they just, it was such a good project, such a good story, but it just wasn't time for it yet. And I think for producers, they have to be very mindful of that. Um, it's not just keeping up with current events. It's kind of just talking to people um, and making sure that you're in a very diverse group of people. I think every producer, if you're only talking to your buddies from school, it's a problem. You need to talk to people from different backgrounds, different financial backgrounds, different races, different ethnicity, everything. You need to expand your horizons, travel. When you go to, even if you just travel a state over, go to like, don't go to Applebee's. I mean, I love you Applebee's. <laughs> but like, eat Applebee's when you're home. But if you're in another place, go to like the little mom and pop and just kind of sit at a diner and talk to some people. Because I'm thinking, wow, this is such a great idea. I go to Montana, these people will never watch this. 
So it's okay if that's not, but I gotta keep that in mind. So if I'm not, I have no idea what's going on. I think like even with the political culture right now, people are like, I didn't know people thought like this. I'm like, I did. I toured all the country doing merchandise events. Like, I believe me, this is nothing new. But it's like, that's necessary. When you're the person, a producer, that is, is in a position to choose what stories are made or choose which stories you're going to push through or find financing for, choose the right ones for the time and tell the person if it's not ready, they might fight you on it, you might lose the project and they might do it anyway and then you'll see that they, you were right. <laughs> but if you communicate in a way the person can get down with it and then for writers, just know like while you're writing, let yourself run free but also be aware of what's happening around you and that doesn't mean your idea can't happen, you just might need to adjust it so it's like the little, you know, like sugar with the medicine type of thing, like a little bit of sugar. Just add a little sugar in it so that it's a little bit more palatable for where we're at. That way we can spread it to the world and everyone can see your art. But if you're staying in this space and you're futuristic and you have this whole idea of where we're going, like, okay, let's, now we got to add a more budget and make it futuristic then. It can't be now because we're not there yet or whatever. So yeah, being very mindful of what's happening, what the culture is and seeing when I'm reading that script, can someone accept this as truth right now? And you, there'll always be a couple no's, and you gotta know who those no's are. But if it's mostly yeses, all right, we can now move forward. Do you also go to movie theaters in, other, in, in your travels, in towns where the industry is not prevalent or it's not a big city, and this is like the main focus of the town, like there's nothing else to do here? I do, I go to a lot of movies that, in a town where there is nothing else to do but movies. And I mean nothing, like in the middle of nowhere. Um, and it's very interesting, um, their take on things. And I like, especially in those areas, right after the film, those people talk the most. They will give you the ins and outs. And I learned this by seeing it, but I also learned it from somebody that we don't like to talk about right now, but Harvey Weinstein. He established something where he would put in a strip mall a random in the middle of Jersey where nobody goes anywhere but the movies and to like the club, like, and the club is a pub, right? <laughs> like he put, he would use that theater as his litmus test. So he would put it forth for an audience, there would be not, nobody else around and he would just have them judge it. And he would literally stop production or not go forward because of that little weird little town. And if Harvey Weinstein, as horrible as his integrity is, but the man was genius when it came to business and how things work and how to get things made and sold, things that weren't necessarily the most popular thing, if he can do that, I can at least go sit in the theater and watch how the audience reacts to it, even though they're not the people that we're talking to the most. Because they're gonna give you some information you'll never heard about. I've sat in a, uh, a movie theater, just recently in Reading, Pennsylvania, which is like the middle of nowhere, but also I went, um, it was somewhere in uh, Tennessee, and I can't remember the, the area, but um, these people, they'll stay outside the movie theater for an hour. You don't get that in a city. They're like, oh, it was nice, and they're out. You, so you don't really get as much talking. Even in indie, in indie theaters in a city, they, they leave much quicker. But I'm saying, I was just sitting there with my popcorn and just listening to them talk. <laughs> and Scott does this, uh, uh, the director I work with, he actually goes and talks to them and asks them questions. And he brings me back information I didn't hear before because his questions kind of sparked it. So everyone in, like, in my team, uh, my production company, the Audacity, we kind of have that mentality like, hey, go to the movies, please. Like my, my goal eventually is to make, make sure everyone on my, on my staff has an uh, AMC A-list. Like you can go see three movies a week without worrying about the cost. Like it's like, you know, these companies have gym memberships that they give to their employees. I want to give you it. Here, go watch movies. That's something I want to do. So I, I encourage them to go to the movies, take time off to do that because it's necessary. But also don't just leave after. 
stay for the credits, of course, we respect our industry, but then also listen, stay in, in the lobby a little bit, see what people are saying, because that teaches us far more than film school. An audience teaches us, because that's, that's what we're here for. We are, we're here for the audience. So how can you really communicate to an audience with this idea that you have a, a vision, but you, you've never really heard an audience respond to something that you know what you thought the response would be? Let's hear them out. No matter how obscure their area is, no matter how city they are, how cool they are, like those guys that wear like the mom jeans, those are the guys you want to hear respond about your little indie. Like that's the guy's going to tell you some truth. So yeah, listen to him too. Everyone, listen to everyone. <laughs> I don't even know where to scream from. The mom jeans. <laughs> no, no. <laughs> Does a project have to have distribution before you will take it on as a producer? No. Um, I know a lot of producers that do that. Um, where they only work on a project if it has distribution or interest. Me, I'm not big enough to do that, and I don't think I would do that anyway. Um, because there's a lot of times where our industry, once something goes and pops off, everybody runs to that, right? But in like the art of war, if everyone's running and looking over here, what's over here? Like, you know? So if you don't have distribution, it might just be that your project is just not good enough, or it's a gem. And everyone's looking over here, but guess where they're going to be looking at next? At this gem that you just found. So I think that even at the highest level, um, the producers that don't have that rule, they find those gems. And I mean that from a place, I'm not going to like, I don't want to name drop, but there's a very specific producer right now, and she's like at the top. And she does that. She finds these gems. She meets these directors at like Sundance, and she's like, what are you working on? Send it over. You know, like this guy, this weird guy at Sundance, and he makes the best like, he makes the next thing that people are looking at, and then you'll see 18 of them pop up the next year, and we stay in that moment, but who found the first one? And that only happens if you find those things that don't have the attention. So no, as a producer, I don't have that rule. I do think about distribution, though, early on. Like I said, like if it's a, I'm reading a script, and I love it, but I'm like, who is going to buy this? Like, I have to, to, to dig into that. And that doesn't mean I'm not gonna take it on, but I do have to manage the expectation of the, of the writer or producer, I mean, writer or director or whoever is a part of it so far. And then also say like, hey guys, like if we do this one thing, this is gonna feel bad, creatives, right? You're talking to creatives. This is going to feel bad. But if you make this one change, I can make a whole lot of people see this because I could probably get this distributor. If you don't make the change, I love it so much, I'll work on it. But understand, if your goal, because remember we talk about, I always ask them first, what's your goal in this? Where do you see this going? If they're like, oh, I just want it to be in theaters and I just want this. Well, now we gotta have a conversation. This is not gonna probably make it to theaters. And then they just slump down. But if you make this change, I'll have a better chance to get into theaters. And now we're having a conversation with a creative that doesn't wanna make any changes, but now they're more motivated because they want, their goal is to get people to see it or their goal is to get to this distributor or to get on Netflix or whatever it is. So yeah, I think it's important to remain open, but mindful of distribution. Is that change usually always um, include adding a name talent to the main character? No, uh, Jason Bloom ruined that. No, <laughs> I love Jason Bloom. Um, no, it's right now, if you're at a big budget level, you definitely need a named person. You need somebody that people recognize because you're going to get people to watch this everywhere. So it's all about the marketing and nothing else. Like you just have to show things people like. They wanna see a sex scene, they wanna see a beautiful woman, they wanna see a guy that they recognize, give it to them. But if you're in a independent space, right? You're in a place where you're bringing some art, you're bringing something that connects with this audience or that audience, there's other motivations here. 
It's not just the glitz and the glamour. It's not just the color. There are other things that can make something go. Like, look at Blair Witch. I mean, that thing went nuts. And why did it go nuts? You learn that and then you can apply it to other things. But those, those moments in time where all the rules that people tell us, well, you need a named actor, you need this. We've seen, we've seen things happen without it. There is, there is, it's not an anomaly. It's only an anomaly because it happens so few and far between because people aren't taking chances. I recently spoke to someone um, that is, I won't say the name of the company, but they're pretty, everyone knows the name of this company. And they said, I love this project, but I have to be honest, I would be scared to distribute it. And I was like, what? Like, I'm this little producer, and you're telling me you're scared. I'm not. But they have to be, because their job is literally to make sure something sells. They're not creatives. They're not. I mean, they could be, but that's not their job. Their job is to only make sure something sells. Now, their next film, they make a decision that head of acquisitions or whatever it is, they make a decision that doesn't sell. Guess what? They can get fired. So understanding, like, there's a job here that's on the line. The only reason they're telling you no is because something doesn't necessarily push us forward. So then go back to the big dream, having the ability then, like a Harvey Weinstein, to be able to find that little gem and market it in a way that connects with those niche audiences, that connects with those people that care about more than that. So it's not just a named actor. It's like tugging on this heartstring, tugging on this political, like salacious moment that we're all experiencing. We're arguing about this. Let me just drop a line in the trailer that tells me that we're gonna deal with this controversial thing and now I wanna go watch it or whatever it is that you know we play these games of marketing and then you watch the film, and you're like, oh, well, it wasn't really about that. But I got you to come because I focused on these elements that aren't necessarily are only an actor, a star. So it is overcomable. But of course, we're still in the age of like faces and people that we know. They drive people to it. It's like, I know this woman. And actually, even uh, the wife of our executive producer, she's not going if it's not Tom Cruise. Like, <laughs> if it's Tom Cruise, because she's not, she doesn't like going to movies. She likes to watch, you know, her, you know, Netflix or whatever. But if it's Tom Cruise, she's getting up and she's going. So you have to keep that in mind. But if you can't afford a Tom Cruise, the person you think that's going to bring all these people in, it's, it probably won't. So you need that plus this, plus this, plus this. So focus in on those other things first and then try to fit that star into the budget because and I'm not trying to focus on Tom Cruise, but if it's not Tom Cruise, if it's not Denzel, they're not flocking for it. And also, we're living in a time where people can go watch Tom Cruise at home now, or Denzel at home, or Will Smith at home, or Angelina, or whoever. So that's not gonna get them out to your movie necessarily. So now you gotta think of the other elements. I think it's making this work a lot more hard to really dig in and see what people want. So it's a, it's a curse. It's a moment where everybody's like exhausted, like what do they want? how to sell this, but also it's like, it's a blessing. It's like, we get to grow in this moment as filmmakers, as storytellers, like, I'm not gonna depend on a star. I'm gonna depend on how I'm gonna connect with that audience in such a way that if I just get a good marketing team to show that I've got that connection, my movie's gonna get seen. And then you gotta add in all the other glitz and glamour of like commercials and things, so P&A. <laughs> yeah, so it's a lot, a lot of elements to it, but the actor, that big actor that makes them come has been diminished because we're kind of going into the next era of ensemble cast, interesting stories that connect to this group of people. You know, we're, we're kind of moving away from that because we, we, years ago, we moved into the age of realism. So when you've got realism happening, in real life, it's not all about one person. So how can you bank a whole movie on one person unless you're just like, the whole world's in love with them? And how many stars can we actually say right now, everyone's in love with? I mean, it's like, it used to be just, that was the world. Like even growing up watching old movies, it's like, 
It's just certain people. Humphrey Bogart. Right, right. But where is our Humphrey right now? Where is our Audrey Hepburn, my favorite? Um, where, where are those people that just, people just are, they fell in love with? Our Hollywood sweethearts, our America sweethearts. Mm-hmm. Where are they? They're, they're now getting into that phase of they're also producing, like Brad Pitt, or, you know, like it's, it's different. Like they, they're getting into a new era, and then this newer era of actors and such. They're an ensemble cast. They're getting known on, like, it was this actor. I was like, how do they have such a big social media following? I've never heard of them. And then someone told me, oh, they're on that show on Netflix. And I'm like, what? But that girl's not going to sell a movie. I didn't know who she was. So, so so many others. But if you found that gem on Netflix, you had this huge following, you got people following on social media, engaging with you, but you can't sell a movie off of her if you're releasing in theaters. So the people that people are, like, attracted to right now are influencers. <laughs> that they can watch for free on their phones. So how do we overcome that? We can't only focus on the actor anymore. We have to focus on connecting with them and something they care about. And that takes a lot more work sometimes. Do you think the reason we don't have the Ava Gardners, the Humphrey Bogarts, Audrey Hepburns is because there is too much realism and now we know about everybody's personal life for better or worse, because that's become part of the tabloids at the supermarket and we just can't resist Oh wait! Oh, this ha- wait! Oh, I just have to see this really quickly, and it ruins it because then we see they're just like they're just like us. Yeah, it's like um, it's a good and bad thing to know that they're just like us. Like you know, you see in the magazine, they're just like us. They go grocery shopping. <laughs> That's fun, right? But you like, oh, they're just like my uncle so and so that is on like some type of drug, or they're at rehab, or they're making a fool of themselves at a party, and you get to watch it the next day on TMZ. It's like, ugh. It's the glamour is gone. It's not the same. I can't say it's gone. It's changed. So it's more like, wow, you're on TV, not wow, you're perfect. That doesn't exist anymore. Mm-hmm. Um, so again, with the information age that we are in, that's information across the board. But that also is a lot of exposure. And when you are exposed, it's either going to be really good or really bad. That's why people hide themselves so often. We can't be vulnerable because it's exposing ourselves. And if you're exposing something, it's something you don't want people to see. So now we're at the, the state where it's pe- people being paid to go find things that people don't want to see. People are being planted in places to yes. spark that uh, un- unnatural or, uh, I don't know, just ugly desire that this person has. Yeah, let me go plant someone to help bring that uh, into play. This is a weird time we're living in. And then we also have things like Me Too that... People that, oh, they lifted on, the, on these pedestals and they fell in such a demoral, like, disgusting way where you're like, him? I followed him with, like, I would watch everything he's in. So, yeah, I think the masses are a little jaded. And I think as filmmakers, we have to accept that. Because so, many, so often, they, I mean, they still, and, and I'm like, studios are smart. They do it best, right? But then they put a, someone in a film and they put so much money into it and they're like, you watch that they just banked on a star and it didn't work. And they do it again and again and again. So especially in the independent world, we can't make that decision. We don't have the, the, the capital or the security to even like have a failure. So we have to be really mindful like, hey, let's think holistically about this. Let's understand what people are. There's no more, wow, so-and-so's in your movie. Like that's a little less of a thing. So being mindful, yes, there are tabloids, there's all these things that can pull a person down and show us the realism. But also on the flip side, you can also see some really cool things, like how caring a person is in their philanthropy or whatever. So, so many things about it. 
where they could just fill out your buddy, but you don't necessarily get really excited to see your buddy. It's a familiarity. So let's not act like they're excited to see this actor. They have to be excited to see your film. They have to be excited about your story. And the only way to connect with someone's excitement that is proven at any time is to find out their why, to find out their own motivation. So again, going back to knowing the masses, like what are we being motivated by right now? What are we worried about? And the news does it so well. I mean, like if we watch the news and then figure out what they're right about, I think we'll kind of win because the news knows, all right, now they're fearful. Let's talk about the Taliban all day. Or now they're upset. Let's now bring in all the negative things that were tweeted. It's like, well, we can do that too as filmmakers, but we could also give a respite. Audrey Hepburn, Audrey Hepburn, one of the favorite quotes of mine, um, that she was proud to be in a business that gives a respite. And we still can do that. Even though we're living in an age of realism and we're giving real stories, we can still let that person escape from their life by connecting with their feelings. And that's something that we're so connected now with social media, but there's so much less of a connection. I remember growing up, I knew all my neighbors and down the street, like they could tell me, get off my lawn, I'm telling your mom. And I knew they were really serious. Now, like my son, I don't know the neighbors down the street. They would yell at him, I would never hear about it. So <laughs> we're less connected, but more connected. It's, it's an odd time. We're trying to figure out where we're at. We're even trying to figure out what, what the sexes are now. It's so many things. But we as filmmakers have a, a great opportunity to capitalize on that in a way that's not just for the sake of, ooh, let me capitalize off of that and make some money off of it. Like some movies that found, um, a controversial thing and made a movie, but then it failed because it wasn't authentic. What is what is it more? What more that can you give? Because the tabloids already give the salacious like drama. There's reality shows that can give them drama. So what else are you giving them where they can take away? And we can do that in a way that no one else can. Film is still, I think, by far the most comprehensive, easiest way to connect in a two-hour frame, and then the story is over. TV is amazing. But your story can go on forever. So you're going to lose people. You're going to gain people. But film is like, hey, here's the story. So what are we giving with that story? We can give so many things. So just being mindful of those other things that we can give. And then we're able to get there in that place where people are watching our films and people are celebrating our art and we're getting more chances. And all that, all that though, starts with a why. Like why the audience likes something, where they're at. So yeah, being mindful of the times. We gotta make sure we start with the, this is my line. Gotta start there. Yeah. It's no, like, give, give the, what is it, give the mouse a cookie? Give the mouse a cookie, he's gonna want some milk. Is that the book? Oh, I haven't read that one. Yeah, it's like a children's book. If you give a mouse a cookie, you give it, is that what it is? Yeah, give a mouse okay. a cookie, <laughs> he'll want some milk. And then it's like, after you give him the milk, and then the mouse wants like a napkin. It's like, it's like this whole little thing. Oh, okay. It's a children's lesson, but we all need to know it. Like, don't give that mouse a cookie. Even though it's like, whoa, a cookie's harmless. No. Because if you get them the cookie, now you've established that he can get something that he wants. And not just say he, she, like he, she, whoever. Too, yeah. mm -hmm. And it's not even on, this, on the same thing as a scandal, even in business, like on the business side, like, all right, well, you're gonna go ahead and work for cheap, that's great. Do it, work for free if you're able to do it. But you, it's a different establishing moment. It's like when I was in my space of like, I'm gonna work for free and go make money in production for events, I would say this, you know what, for you, I'm gonna do this. Now, normally I wouldn't do it, but I'm just, I believe in your project so much. Now, I was not lying, but I had no other options, <laughs> right? But you can't have that, that, that um, posture. Like, when you have strong beliefs in who you are and you keep that morality solid in your lines, you can present something, and it's not being fake, it's just knowing where you're going. You might not have anything right now, but if you go to that table like, please, could I have some more, <laughs> you know? Right. Like, then they're gonna treat you like that. And then, yeah. and then when you've grown, they're still gonna treat you like that. So come to the table like, you know what? For you, 
I'm going to do it for free. Or for you, I'll do it cheaper. Or for you, I'm going to do a little bit more work than I normally would. But you have to communicate that as the anomaly so they don't think, they, they want to feel, let them feel like they're getting a treat, not like this is right. what it is. Like, this is just how it is. So I think it's our posture, all aspects. But our posture is motivated by our confidence and our morality and our, you know, this is my line. Like, having that established, and it's, it's hard, but again, going back to building your person, building your confidence, building who you are, building the, your sphere of influence, building those things before you build a career is great. Now, a lot of people can't do that. They're thrown into it. They're a Disney star or whatever, but that's why you see so many Disney stars have these horrible, like, young adulthoods, but there was nobody around to keep them in that space and let them know who they were before they went and played a character. And I think the ones that actually do succeed and you see them, like, thriving life, they always say, oh, my family kept me grounded. I knew what I was coming into. My dad always told me, don't accept people treating you this way or whatever it is. Like, it's something there that they were hold, holding on to. So we can apply the Disney character, uh, not just Disney, but young just uh, child actors. Apply that to your life as an adult, and you really will learn a lesson. It's like, I got to hold on to who I am. I got to hold on to my values. I got to hold on to my, my hard no and never waver from that. And, and once you make that decision, I don't know what it is about the universe, it will attract the counterfeit, the dangling of the carrot, because I, I get approached by so many things that I'm just like, and these people are like, I didn't even got approached by that. I'm like, well, maybe because I just, I have a hard no. And for some reason, it wants to test it. It's like the universe is testing their hard no. And I've been tested in every single time. I've lost money because of it, I've lost jobs because of it. But where I am now is so much more solid. The, integrity that I've operated in is so much more solid, my foundation that I've built. And also, I believe that people that work with me, they'll work with me for the rest of their lives. Because I'm coming from a space that I'm coming as a whole person, I don't need them to come to me a certain way for me to feel like I'm a whole person. I are, I'm already that. And that's a relationship technique, but it's a technique that you can apply to any relationship, not just marriage or whatever. You can apply it to work. So come as a whole person. Even if you're the guy that just wrote his first script, you don't have, you're living in your car like Sylvester Stallone. Stallone went in that room and said, no, I'm going to do this. I'm going to play the character. How did he do that? He was homeless because he knew what he had. He knew who he was. So if Sylvester Stallone can be rocky when everybody told him you can't, so can you. Hold on to your hard no, the thing that you know is part of your, your future. You can hold on to that even in a moment where it's like, uh, I don't really have any power in the situation. You don't have to come with bravado, but you can come with confidence. And you could walk in the room like, I'm the cheapest person here. <laughs> I got on these cheap clothes. I just finished the script this morning. I was writing all night or whatever it is. I don't have this. I don't have that. I just have like $3 in my bank account. And walk in that room like the person that you're growing to be or that person you've already seen. Because if you have a desire and something, you already saw something for the future. Walk in the room like that. And that's any room. And you will have different responses than these people that uh, gave the mouse a cookie and then he asked for milk, and then this, and then that. Like, stay, stay right there. Just keep your cookies in your pocket. <laughs> and, and, and don't go forth in, in a space where you're wavering on those, those non-negotiables. And to have non-negotiables, you gotta have confidence. And to have confidence, you have to have proven yourself in some way to you, not to someone else. So if you've proven that, hey, I think I'm talented. I think I can deal with people. I can do this. I can do that. So just stay in that space. You're, you're talented. Somebody tells you you're not, that doesn't mean now you got to do something that they want you to do to show them you're talented. You know you're talented. So have that posture. Having that posture has helped so many people that I've seen and definitely helps me. And I think that's a, that's a way, whatever your entry point is, if you hold on to that, your entry point will be pure. 
it won't be something that you got to look back on like, man, I had to do such and such to get in this industry. You can actually say, you know what, I, I did it right. And I got positive responses because of my confidence, because confidence will bring the most powerful person at your doorstep. Because if you believe in you, they're like, whoa, what is it that I'm missing here? Let me see what she has, you know? So I think confidence is a, is a big part of that, having those non-negotiables. Before we got started with our interview, we were just talking about hiring people and, you know, people reacting to the word no, people reacting to the word yes. Can you talk about that and, and what that means to you? Yeah, it's a, a little practice that I have adapted and still, I, I think I, I play around with it, um, is to, when hiring someone or working with someone or going into any form of partnership or pl place where I'll have to interact with someone, I watch the way they respond to no. And even if I have to kind of strum up this opportunity where I can tell them no early on, or even if it's not a no, it's like, all right, give me a second, be patient, whatever it is. Now, in those early stages, they're not going to come out and say these things. You have to be very, very, very perceptive, but just see how they react to that. And that is going to usually be a telltale sign to something about their character that you might have to keep an eye on. And I say I play around with it because I've actually seen this work where I've never been wrong. It's like, okay, they, I saw the way they responded to no. Even a year from then, they're having a horrible situation with a coworker or cast member or this or that. And it comes down to that one thing where I saw they can't handle the no. Or there's something that stirs up in them from a no. And what I've seen is, you know, you can like simplify it to being childhood of maybe mom told them no too much or maybe mom told them no not enough like ever or um the teacher kind of was like well they're a special kid let's let them do what they want or whatever it is where you had freedom to do something that maybe wasn't the most like healthy freedom um where you needed some boundaries or whatever it is um uh the, some people are then able to mature and seek out what they didn't get but most people aren't. Most of us just aren't that mature. It's just is what it is. So we're we're gonna fall into a space that we were prone to from childhood. Even if you don't see it in certain moments, you're gonna see it when things get bad. And with film, things are gonna get bad at least one day. <laughs> it's like the moment of truth. Like you get to know people so much after you film a film with people, everyone's like, oh, I love you. And what does that happen? You work with somebody <laughs> for a year and you love them. Like. We can work at, um, uh, I don't know, a, a plant, Amazon, and like, I don't even know, what are their kids' names? Like, you don't know anything about a person. You don't have any feelings for the person, but the feelings are high because you're very connected. It's intimate spaces, it's long days. It's things that are uncontrollable, like weather and finance and whatever, things that you just can't control. So it, um, it's gonna stir up uh, people in a, a more aggressive way than other vehicles, right? So knowing that, you need to know how they respond to no. You need to know how they respond to an obstacle. And you need to know how they're going to interact when they're upset about something or not happy about something or didn't like something. And the way that I find that out in a very limited way is to early on, even sometimes before I hire them, is to tell them no or wait. Or I don't really like when you said that. How do they respond to that? Like um, Scott, who I work with, he's very much a part of um, our company, The Audacity, but also he directed um, the film, um, uh, the film I last worked on. And he is like the best at, 
I don't really like that. And he's like, oh, why don't you like it? That's his response. That's awesome. It's not, how dare you? It's like, no, it's okay. Like, now let's talk. I don't like that. You don't like that? Why? So, but if someone's like, I don't like, I don't like when you said such and such, or I don't really like that idea. And they're like, they get sad. That doesn't mean don't work with them. That just means be mindful that this person may not be able to take those moments. And you're going to have to have those moments when being creative. Creatives have to be, feel confident to talk and they can't be shut down by a no. So there's someone I'm working with now even like brilliant, but the, the no's are when the other team's like, ah, what about this? I don't really like the idea. What about this? You see them pulling back and kind of putting a wall up and digging into that a little bit more. They didn't have those opportunities to kind of like show themselves as a kid and be validated by showing themselves. It was more like stay in your place. Uh-uh, not right now, not right now, mm -mm, no, stay here. So when that person starts to feel a little comfortable and they say what they were thinking, I need the team to be mindful. Now's not the time to criticize, except what they just said. And then we're going to deliver this a little bit more softer than I do. I would with Scott. Scott, you like, no, I don't like it. All right, why? Like, you know, it's, it's, it's being mindful of people, being careful with it, but knowing that this is gonna be necessary. So if it's necessary for me to tell you, I don't like your idea, let's find out how you react to that earlier than where I'm like, oh my gosh, we have a deadline and this person literally will not write now because now they're just having a mental breakdown because they don't like their idea. Cause that can derail a whole project. So finding that out early on and a fun little way, <laughs> a very easy way that I, I have adapted to my own likes is yes, finding out how they respond to no or wait, or I don't like it. Were there any mistakes that you made with what death leaves behind that you wish you could have corrected or? Okay. Absolutely. <laughs> um, yeah, I made a lot of mistakes on what death leaves behind and, and I make mistakes in anything. I think the main one though, um, one that I'll, I think I learned the lesson well enough is to not deviate what I know is true, what I've already learned. Um, so I made a, um, a concession for an individual. Um, I saw something, but I accommodated it instead of dealing with it. And I know that's not the way to do things. I know that. But I made a concession because the person was temperamental and a little sensitive. And that is something that you adjust with, but that's not something you don't deal with. That's not something you don't change with, or you, know, you still have to thwart things, stop them before they grow. And that one decision, allow for this person to put, uh, I guess, poison on others. Because I figured if I just accommodate that thing and make sure I'm building them up enough or giving them enough encouragement, then they would be okay. But they were okay with me. But if they, you saw something, I won't say ugly, but something undone in a person, how do you think they're gonna interact with their teammates? They're gonna bring that to them and that's something, you know, as a producer, you're all the way up here. You're not going to hear the little, the little riddle, like the little sounds, the little murmurs, the little complaints. You're going to hear the big stuff. And when the big stuff comes, you're like, I could have fixed this by dealing with what I saw. So I think for me, the main, the main thing that I messed up on was not sticking to something I knew was true because I was trying to accommodate a person. You have to, that's the thing about being empathetic, right? Like you're empathetic, but that doesn't mean you change your movements. That means you change how you deliver the movement. So it's like the conversation should have been had and I should have put, um, uh, I guess, uh, like a, a test for moments where I can check back in or ask people around him, hey, how's, how's it going with this? Not giving them anything, but just kind of seeing, because by the time it got to me, the one all the way up here, 
it was like mayhem. And I'm talking about, that's one thing that doesn't normally happen with my sets because everyone feels empowered, they feel supported, but it's a book called The Energy Bus. And there's one person that can shift an energy and you feel it. And if you're all the way up here, you're thinking, oh, let me get them going. Let me give them more. Let me make sure they have better food, you know? But you won't know where it's coming from, but that's why in a leadership position, we have to make sure when we see things, we deal with it and we have to deal with it aggressively. And that aggression though, should have empathy, empathy with it because if you're strong without empathy, you're a jerk. So be strong though, first with empathy. And now you're a leader. Now you're fixing a problem. Now you're the person that's going to remove the energy that is lacking or, or bringing negativity. And even that's hard for that person, should do it with care, but now everyone else is taken care of because you can't think about the person most, you have to think about the group most. So I'm thinking about my whole team, that energy would not have been given the concession or the pass. I, would, if I was thinking of the whole team in that moment and not the person's feelings. I would have dealt with it, it would have been out. And a few people were hurt by that person that wouldn't have been hurt if I dealt with it differently. And it wasn't even a lesson like, wow, that's how you do it. It was like something I knew, but I made a deviation and, and that was the outcome. So thank goodness, it, it, the end of it, you know, everyone that dealt with it, I mean, we had like meetings about it. We had, this is after the film is over. Um, we dealt with it and it was kind of like, almost like a support group. <laughs> and I'm laughing because it's like, oh my gosh, how did this happen? But yes, that, that person definitely was a negative energy and they were removed halfway through production, but they didn't even have to be there. I could have just continued on caring about that person off the set. And that's what I would have done different. When should a producer quit their job, whatever their day job was or night job was, to focus on being a film producer entirely? When do they feel like, or when do you feel like that's a safe transition? Yeah, um, it's really hard to be safe when transitioning from something of structure or stability to being a producer. Um, unless you're going to, you got a job, you were hired um, at a studio or something like that. It's a hard thing, but if you're coming from the independent world and you're like, all right, I'm about to venture out and just do this. It's really hard to establish a safe thing. I think wisdom is the most important thing. Wisdom within a place that could be very dangerous. Um, for one, whatever your profession is or whatever you're making your money in, see if you can continue making that money while still doing it. And if you say, I can't, find out why. Like, is it a money problem, a time problem? Is it a capacity problem? Because it's gonna look so green on this side of like, I get to live out my dreams. <laughs> and I even work with somebody right now where they're like, I just can't wait till I can quit my job. And I'm like, yes, but then this, that seems so perfect. Even when they come to set, we're stressed. They're like, this is great. I'm like, yeah, but when this is your thing and everything is dependent on it, that stress is something that you're gonna experience higher than your job because there's no, there's no net there. So just be aware of why like, why is it that I feel that I can't do my job still and do this? So then come up with a plan. So for me, I was doing events and I never had that cushion. I always had, I don't know, living on the dangerous side. I always had contracts and I didn't have a job. I always had that. But you know, with events, you get that one client that just keeps, hey, can you do this? Can you do that? It's great. So I had that. But those clients, I couldn't do you know, I, I produced a lot of big events and then I also uh, did personnel management for like US Open, just to give an, an idea of the high level um, amount of pressure or importance of me being there, right? So to remove myself from that, I had to save money. And that money that I saved was enough. If something went bad, I could have money to exist on before I went and did something else to make some money. 
Like if that that's money and, and that's different for everyone. You gotta really take an account of what your life is. I live way below my means always. That's something I learned from my dad, being this Jamaican man. Um, but what are, what are, what do I need to survive? And what do I need to survive for six months? Six months. Like if something went bad. I didn't get to the six month. I didn't have a little nest egg that big. But I, I was able to have like a solid like say four put away. Because four months, I'm scrappy. If things go bad, I can find some money in four months. You know, So put some money away to where if something went bad or didn't work out, don't have a safety net where you're going to quit, but have a safety net where you can still figure it out and you don't have to just fall apart and then go work at a soup kitchen. I don't know, <laughs> something, you know. Um, so that, and then figure out um, who is your support system in this next venture. Because a lot of times we think, again, it's so green on that side where I'm going to be having this wonderful career, but it's, it, it gets really hard and it's not the same support as a job. People are like, oh, my boss is this, my boss is that, this manager. But there's a manager there. There's somebody that manages you. There has been teams of people that sat and came up with a plan of what you're going to do today. That's an employee. Now you go into the other world where now you got to figure that out. You need a support system of people that you can bounce ideas off of, that can hold your head when you're crying. <laughs> you know, there's so much more that needs to be built into your life that isn't necessary for a job. Where, as Americans, you know, like that industrial age really put us in that that employee mindset, which is fine. Like that's what, how we survived all these years. But now, as we're venturing out to things in business, film is a business. So you're going to film. You can't just think, "Oh, I'm a creative." You're also a business because you're going to have to do something. You're you're now a commodity. At the job, your time is your commodity. You're asking, can you pay me for this amount of hours? Now you're saying, hey, I have to build my art and build myself to be a commodity enough where someone's going to pay me to do it. And that's a whole new world. And you don't know it yet unless you're coming from business to business. Like if I was, you know, this awesome business person, that's why some people you see like Ava DuVernay, like she kind of crossed over and she's like, whoa, she's this huge uh, director out of nowhere. It's like, no, she was doing this thing already. So if you haven't already been doing it, understand you're going to come into it at an elementary level and don't have these ideas of grandeur like, oh, I don't, I'm good. Like, no, you're not. It's okay. So have a very strong support system. Read a lot. And I don't mean just reading film books. Read for something that's going to feed your mind because times are going to get harder than what you can imagine. And that's not like doomsday, but it's like you're going to experience some very new things. So that's hard. New is hard. So if you're experiencing new things, you need some truths to hold on to in those moments. So read. Me personally, I read a proverb every day. Every single day I read a proverb. And I'm always trying to read some type of book. Even if it's like, I mean, our time, like sometimes I'm not sleeping, so I'm not reading as much. Like, hey, I could just grab this little John Maxwell book and just read a page of it. Okay. And then go back to what I'm doing, you know? So just feeding yourself. You don't need to feed yourself as much when you're in an employee mindset, but you need to feed yourself when you're in a position where either business ownership, or where you're now a commodity, you have to feed yourself and feed yourself and you're getting rejection, you're getting this, you're getting that. And remember, the things that cause someone to quit is not usually their ability. It's usually something that is happening that they can't overcome. So let's go ahead and build your up, yourself up to where you're not gonna quit when things get hard, because things will get hard. Um, and then outside of that, timing is everything. Like let's say, I don't know, the, the, whatever the, the position is that you have, know the timing of it. Like if you can, you hold off for one more year. When you, and you hold off for one more year, you're able to execute this plan of saving and such without as much stress. You know, that's the timing of that. Or, okay, you have a film idea, great. Have you written it yet? Have you talked to the people that are going to be helping you in this next moment? If you're going to be a producer, 
do you even know what project you're gonna be working on? I left fully when I was ready to produce my own feature. I was producing things and doing this. It was like pulling me all types of directions. And I lived like that for years. It was hard, but be okay if you're in a hard space and you're like, this is too much, good. Because when you're ready to step out, that too much, when you take off one element, you're gonna feel like, I can do this even more than someone that's just like, right off the bat, like I'm quitting, I'm going. But everyone's different. Some people just like throw their cares to the wind and jump into it, but they're jumping into something that already exists. So where are you going? So yes, you're ready to go. That's great. Uncomfortable, uncomfortability is a sign of change. You need to change if you're uncomfortable. And I think that's, that's our, what we are created with. I believe in a creator. So what you were created with to say, there's something in me that is so uncomfortable in this box. I gotta get out. Good. But be prudent about it. Talk to people. Find out where you're going before you just throw everything away and say, I'm done. Some people tell me, wow, you're so courageous. You're so bold. Like, how did you just, how did you do that? And especially because when I was leaving that world, my, one of my clients offered me double my salary for an event. And that's where I knew I had to go. <laughs> because I could have just been like, oh, more money. But if they offered me double and that entire time they weren't paying me double, I realized that I will only be paid, even though I was great, I will only be paid by someone how much they, the least amount they can do for my worth. But when I got into film, now I'm creating my own entity. Now I can go ahead and say, I'm gonna make it what it's worth. I'm gonna make it what it's worth. I'm gonna add the pieces together to make this worth something. Not someone telling me my worth is this and then saying, you know what, I'm gonna subtract. You know what, I'm gonna add. So I think it's really important to just really know where you're going to um, be un uncomfortable good, but just know how long can you handle that uncomfortability is longer than you think. And don't think that it's wasted time with this job because it's building something with you that's gonna be applied in other things. I don't care what the job is. You can be working at Starbucks, a hot dog stand, whatever, because that juggling per perspective of starting something while doing something or even just having that ability to dream while you're under that cloud, that's strength being built in that's like strength you can pull from later on and it's residual income. <laughs> like where it's like, hey, the things that I went through in that time period of kind of doing both, I'm able to really pull from that moment when I'm like, this is too much. I'm like, wait, I don't have to do an event tomorrow. I'm good. You know, like, so it's, it's something, again, confidence built based in work. I already overcame things. I already have done those things while trying to get to the goal. Yeah, but then I also was doing this. I know I can do something. I can... I can make things with my own hands. I can achieve greatness. I can do these things. So do that, prove it to yourself, do a confidence check. Like, you know, like, am I confident enough to do this? And then go off and do it. And, and then it's like without refrain, without looking back, with no second, like, you know, like this is my plan B. No, only have a plan A once you get there. But don't hear people say that and be ignorant to the fact that they got there. You can't start at like no plan A. Like, I mean, no plan B, like, I'm only plan A, but wait, hold on. How do you get there? You have to be prudent, you have to be wise, you have to make decisions, you have to make plans, and then you can cast all that away and jump in with both feet. What's your process six months before production, three months, two months, a week? Um, it varies, the process of six months, three months, two months, et cetera, it varies, but I would say, here's pre-production, right? For a producer, that's like the first big milestone, starting pre-production, because you're working way before. You're the only one, but you're working before pre-production because the official pre-production starting, you have a team involved. So there's a lot more money involved for pre-production. Um, but before that, you are focusing on possible issues before you bring other people on. And those possible issues first, of course, starts with a script. 
Um, it starts with where the money is coming from, what their expectations are, what they like and don't like, how they want to be communicated to. Um, it's establishing what your identity is as a project, what kind of people we're going to bring that together. Just kind of game planning on where you're about to go is going to be putting pieces together, but you can't put pieces together yet until you know the box that you're going to be putting them in. So kind of establishing that box, if that's a way to put it, um, that's what's happening six months out. You're establishing a box. And that might take a year <laughs> instead of six months, but you, you have to do it way before you're actually doing the work, way before you're bringing people in that you're going to lead and ask to do a job. You need to have a box you're going to fit into. And it's hard to do it because as producers, we're not the pre people that actually are going to do it. So it's hard to say, this is the box, now do your thing in that box, unless you have a true vision of where you're going. So first things first, six months out, you should already have a vision, but if you don't, <laughs> Establish it hardcore because if you're going to hire a director specifically, some projects you know the director's already on, but if you're going to hire someone to then lead the way in this beautiful creative, he needs to know where you're going because then he can say, got it. Here's my creative. I'm going to fit it into that and we're going to go in the same direction. Because producers and directors, oh my goodness, they can, or they can do this. And when they do this, beautiful things happen. And usually what I see, I take the onus of that. The producer has to establish a culture, a direction, uh, how we're going to do this. It has to. And it's not saying this is the way it's going to go. It's saying, hey, this is what I'm thinking. This is what I see. And seeing if that person can bond with that and then be themselves within that, those confines. Because as producers, we're the only people that has a power over that person. And we got to be really mindful of that power. You shouldn't be, you shouldn't be concerned, like putting your power in there because you don't like what they're doing. You know, it's like, oh, well, they're creative just doesn't make sense to me today. It doesn't matter. That's their creative. You are hired them. That's your fault. <laughs> so understanding, though, before you start having them work as the leader of that, that set, you need to make sure they know what you expect, where you're at, what the, the stakes are. Even like directors, they come in, they're not supposed to think about money. They first have to feel free to create and feel the, free to go grab 12 wigs for this one actor. No, you know. <laughs> Or whatever it is, like we we need a prosthetic. Do you, you know? But understanding the, the stakes, the limits, the boundaries, and then telling them, run wild in that space. But you know, kind of working on that relationship too. And the reason I say that a lot of people think of that as um, counterproductive, but it's so productive because that relationship is going to determine everything else. That's like the two people that make the film happen, and of course, there's money and all these things. But the producer and the director, if their relationship can work, it's boundless what the, what the film can do. Because now we have an actual culture, we have an actual direction, we have an actual thing, and those things don't have to war. They do war in some ways because you're constantly like, oh, we don't have enough money for that, or whatever it is. So you have to tell them no about some things, but then if you're already established kind of a way to move, that can work so much better. Um, and then three months out, it's pretty much the same thing, but you're kind of like now team building a little bit. Um, you might already have like your cinematographer on. It might be a director that always works with a particular cinematographer and that's great, but just make sure you connect it with that cinematographer as well because the director and cinematographer are the first people to argue. The first. So if they're buddies and they're the guys that like, man, they, I love their bond, you need to be in that bond. You need to take them out to dinner. You need to go hang out with the cinematographer without the director. Take him to lunch by himself. Separate them for two seconds and then bring them back together. The reason being, again, you're game planning, Six months from then, three months from then, they might have a little spat. And now here you are, you've connected with this wonderful director, you know him, and you don't know a thing about that cinematographer. How can you solve the conflict and you know nothing about this person? So this woman that comes in to 
film your project and direct the camera. This beautiful cinematographer comes in and her director is rubbing her the wrong way. Does she come to you? Is she able to talk to you about it or does it just poison your set? Because you didn't even think, oh, I need to reach out to her too. Because I see that another mistake producers make. They don't establish relationships with all the heads of departments. They're kind of just like with the director and then it's like, oh, yep, yep, yep. No, like get in there, like have some moments with each of them. Know something about them. You don't have to like take them to lunch, all of them separately, but do enough. And the cinematographer, I think, would be, if you're going to focus in with someone else, focus in with them. Because a lot of times with these cinematographers, they're very technical. I grew up around a very technical brother. They're not necessarily going to tell you how they feel unless they feel safe. It's certain people that like, safe or not, they're like, listen here, this is not okay. <laughs> but cinematographers usually have a certain, I mean, they don't all, they're not all the same, but usually they have a certain attraction to technical things. So that's a lot of things, the way that brain works is normally not like, blah, 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 blah. <laughs> so I think it's really important to connect with the heads of the department, but especially the cinematographer. And even if it's not for anything else, you're like, this is a waste of time, I have so much to do. Connect with them because later down the line, you're really solving a problem that you're gonna be able to navigate well and with actual knowledge that you can thwart it and get rid of it and bring those guys back together. And I say guys, cause I'm, you know, I just say guys for guys, girls, whatever. Bring them back together in a way that is good for everyone. Cause it's almost like when cinematographers and directors have a moment, it's like mommy and daddy are arguing, like, you know, <laughs> for the cast and crew, like this is uncomfortable. So you got all these people under these two people. And they're all taking direction. So cinematographer is talking to these gaffers and these grips and whatever. The director's talking to the actors and this and the UPM and the AD. Like all this stuff is happening from their hands. Make sure you know these, these people are with you. You're with them. You've already learned a little bit about them. You've hung out with them a bit. So when something happens, if something's happening down here on the lower levels, <laughs> um, uh, above the line or below the line, you know, all right, let me, I know how to handle this with my heads because you can't lead everybody but you can lead leaders. So make sure you're hiring people that are leaders in your head positions, not just the person that's best. Um, the key makeup artist or the key hair, she might not be the best makeup or hair, but she can lead a team. She can communicate to the AD. She knows how to verbalize her issues and hear something and not be offended, but also just make a quick change, not be destroyed under pressure. But the girl that, or the guy that is like the one that's working on the main actor, they're the best in the room but they can't work with anybody. They can't lead anybody. So they have their little, their little tasks, but connect with that key, connect with that person. And when hiring them, make sure that you know that person can handle the pressure of their job, not just the work itself, the pressure of it. So I think that's another thing when you're hiring that crew, um, ask questions that are beyond just technical or straight to their particular little world. Ask them about them. And you'll be surprised. People will talk about themselves and you're like, oh, I don't think this is going to work. <laughs> oh. Or, hey, you know what? I'm going to bring you on as a makeup artist. I'm actually having someone else going to be the key. But I want you to soar and do a great job at you know, whatever you're going to do. So, yeah, I think it's really making sure you're establishing culture, establishing that box, but really digging into your heads. Like your department heads really need to be established. Not only and they are clear on the vision, they're clear on the, the, the task at hand and they feel motivated and all those things, they understand the project, but also that they understand they're about to lead a team and this is the way I lead. I let them know. I don't want any egos on my set. I don't want any, let me tell you about yourself type stuff. Like, no, this is the way we, this is the way I lead. This is the way I'm gonna treat you. This is my expectation for you going forward. Somebody messes up, have some grace with them, communicate that to them. 
If you need assistance and you need backup, use me as the bad guy. You don't have to be it. I tell them that all the time. Let me be the bad guy. You can even say, so Rachel's putting the pressure on me. Like, it's fine. I'm fine being that person in that way, the bad guy in that way. But it's like so often where we're only thinking in pre-production or going into pre-production, we're thinking of, I got this in my schedule. I got my checklist. There's so many checklists online now that you can be like, oh, check, check, check. Add to that checklist, people skills, check. <laughs> I understand my heads of department, check. I understand their motivations, check. Add those things because those are the things that something can fall through and just not go well. It's not just because you didn't have enough funding. It's not just because your lead actor was in an accident that happened to a friend of mine just recently. It's those, those moments where the team just, something happens. And now they're not able to create the best or they're just not being able to work together at all, so. I think we had a YouTube comment from someone that said like, and make sure that it's not just a team of people that all know each other and then you're the new person. Mm -hmm. Because if somebody turns and there's like cancer and then mm -hmm. somehow that's, then now you're the odd person out. You know what yeah. I'm saying? I said, um, that's so true. Uh, familiarity is not the goal. It's, um, do you fit into the culture of the set? So when you hire people, like, you know, especially hiring a director, it's like, well, these are my guys. You need to meet those guys before you say yes. Meet them. And then I would say integrate, integrate, integrate. Because if that, these particular people are working together and they're, they have a certain way of doing things, and that's great, but they've maybe worked on a, on a commercial or a short. They haven't been on, now this is a group of people that did five features together. What do you need me for? What's your goals? What, like, let me see if I actually do actually work with this. Like, is this who I want on my set? Is this how I want to present to this executive producer or whatever? Um, but when you see that, a lot of times it's because they worked shallow enough to where they stayed in a sound, peaceful place for just long enough to do this movie you're about to hire them for. And when they get to the stress of this feature, it's gonna dissipate. And I was on, I was an AD on a project that it happened on. I was AD and usually ADs are like kind of like the, the odd man out because you gotta be like a, the, per, the yelling, the yelling director, right? So you kind of be, you're not part of the crew that work together. You're just there, just, you know, do your job. And these guys, you would have thought they were like brothers when they were hired. Guys and girls, it's just guys, you know, brothers, sisters. Um, and by, I would say week three of the production, the extreme of the emotion in that room because something went wrong was only because they knew each other like brothers. And there was no one else there to balance it out. So it fell apart. The project I only think was finished. I, I had to leave, I had to go to another project, but it was because they, they're coming into things, and it's not to say you can't do it. It's just they're coming in with so much history without ever maybe dealing with, you gotta find out what's the level of intimacy, not familiarity. Great, they have fun together, they have beers together, they go to skate parks together, I don't know. <gasps> but what's the intimacy level of this group? Have they offended each other before? And I can ask them that when hiring them. Like, so have you ever gotten an argument with each other before? Or did you ever disagree with the director you're talking to? Have you ever disagreed with that person or whatever? Yeah, 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 he did such and such. Ask them, probe. Or they're like, no, we're great, we never argue. Come on, these guys are working together on a film Something's gonna come up that you disagree with, and I need to know you can handle that. And if you haven't handled it yet, no worries. I need to know, though, how you guys handle conflict before I say yes to them being on the set. So I think a lot of times people are like, oh, great, that, that hire was super easy. I got this one guy, I got all these other guys, and now I'm done. 
hold up, time out. <laughs> there might be something here that you're, you're going to have to dig into to make sure you're going to take all of them. And if it's like all or nothing, that's fine too. Cause I, I like groups that are like, yeah, it's all of us or nothing. Fine. But just find out who's the weakest link, who's the negative one, who's the pessimist, who's the realist, who's the optimist. And you see if those things work together. So it's like the optimist is the guy that's like the leader of the group. You're going to do a lot better. But the guy that's the leader of the group is the pessimist. And the realist is, you know, just kind of in the middle and the optimist is getting on that pessimist nerves and the realist is trying to balance them out and it, it just, it's going to explode and you're going to have to fix it as a producer. How can you fix that with people that know each other and they don't know you? It's hard. So it's not overcomable. Um, it's not insurmountable. It is overcomable, but you need to be aware of it and make sure that you're really not like I said, taking it like, oh, yes, this was easy, easy hire, really dig in. And it's, it's another, I think it's another level of hiring when you hire people that know each other so well. What's been your hardest year in filmmaking and why? You're going to make me cry. No. Oh, no. Um, I'm sorry. So I don't know. I'll start the story. And if this is like too much for, con like if it's too much for TV, like just let me know. Okay. But I um, lost a pregnancy during okay. pre-production. Oh, no. So, of what Death Leaves Behind. And it was the hardest loss, even though I've lost people. I didn't realize how bad that was. I didn't even, you hear about people that have miscarriage and such. And mine, mine happened while I was, I, was, I was put under. Like, I was not conscious for it. It wasn't my decision. It was, it was one of those things. It was very traumatic. But um, during pre-production, I was on set, like, you know, when I shouldn't have been right after that. But, um, yeah, it was, that was so hard, but I put it away because I had a job to do. We were about to go into production, time to get moving. And I did, I went and moved. And we had, um, we filmed the dream sequences in What Death Leaves Behind separate from the film. And they're like their own little movie because it's different, it looks different, it's weird, it's a dream. It, we shot it in the Sun Center Studios um, in, in Aston, Pennsylvania. And it's very eerie and weird. So we shot them as their own movie. So we like went really hard into it. And this was like a year, like 2016 or something. And um, we shot it, and right after that, I had like a little break from the crazy. And I'm talking about like, I went down. Like it was like all the pain or emotion that I was suppressing kind of just came out. And I wasn't used to that level of pain because of that type of pain because I don't suppress things. People, stuff comes up, I deal with it. But that was different. It was like a whole nother heartstring that was pulled. So that was really tough. And then getting back into production, that's where some things had happened with one person kind of destroying some of the, the, the synergy or whatever you want to call it, the, the culture, the, the caring nature of the set was kind of disturbed by a person and I had to fire them at, during that time. Um, there was a producer that was kind of helping us on some business ends that kind of uh, did some shady things. I had to get rid of them. It was like all these things that were really hard to deal with for anyone, but I was in a really bad space. Like, and I don't mean bad, like I was depressed, but it was like it, my heart was like burst open, like it was very much an open wound and I knew it and I communicated to my inner circle in the, in the group, like, you know, like the director knew at that point, they didn't know when it happened. They knew when I had to go back to the hospital because I had some complications from the surgery during production. I was like in the hospital on my computer and they're like, man, put the computer down. Like it was like crazy time. And then in the same time, I got to fire someone that was really important to the production. And I had to get rid of a relationship that would have made distribution easy because he was shady. <laughs> like stuff like that happened during that time. So I think that year of pre-production was not, even though that was the moment, that wasn't, that year wasn't the hardest. It was 
while, while we were in that lull and then coming back into production and finishing the project, it was so hard because it was really, it's just the hardest thing to do. To finish a film, a feature like film is the hardest thing to do on, in our industry, right? But then to be dealing with some of the hardest things I dealt with in life on the, the side of my husband and I losing a child, like that was really hard. And then like other things that pop up, you know, these, you know, um, draining situations that have nothing to do with the, the movie, but it has to do with the people making the movie. And then things like being um, aware of, and I, and I say shady, I mean like they were doing some bad business and I had to distance myself from that. Um, so all these little things, yeah, that, that made it the hardest year. Um, and I think we all grew from it, myself included, like where we would deal with, we were dealing with a lot. I mean, there were deaths in, we had someone in our production die right after someone that's in the movie. So it's hard for me to watch the film because he passed away. And we had um, a member of the crew, their grandmother died. We had, um, my AD had to drop out during production during the same time because she, she had a, a, a family um, death and different little things like that that have nothing to do with the film. But those things that come up, it's like, are we going to lose because of something that's not the loss? Like, we're gonna make the film, right? Like, we're gonna keep going. So we just had to, it was a moment of huge perseverance. I'll say that. And it was big perseverance, like big hurdles to get over. And it was like, one of those things where like, you know, you get over a hurdle and you're like, ah. It was never that. It was like, all right, another one, another one, another one, while still having a very personal, like, emotional wound. So that was, that was hard. And overcoming that though, lets me know on this little film, the things that we went through and growing leaps and bounds and getting through it and now having a theatrical release and you know, all the things that you just can hope for, we, we achieved that with all of this. Hopefully all that won't happen on the next one, right? But also we know we can handle it. So when things happen, which they will, when things pop up or uh, things happen to us, we've already proven we can overcome things that are really difficult and, and not in like, you know, you go through something, it's hard, and you go through something else, and you're like, whoa, that was nothing. No, I know this was something, what we dealt with. So if we can overcome that, if we can keep going. If I can keep going, if I can remain in a place of, I can still encourage someone that day, when I just cried all night in my two hours that I could have got some sleep, I can get through anything, anything. So there's no project that I can't confidently say to an investor, I'm going to make this film, and I'm going to get this outcome. Because if I said that on this one, and we got the outcome, I could do that on anything. And that's, a, a, that's another level of confidence that doesn't happen without adversity. So if you achieve something in a moment of darkness, how much easier is the light? How much easier is sunrise? Like just, you know, we've, got, we've gotten through it. So we could do it again, we could do it again, we could do it again. So in those moments of weakness or in those moments where things are going bad, I know that I'm not gonna crumble because in the time where I should have, in the moments I had the most crumbling moments, I brought it back together and we kept going. And that had a lot to do with the people I was working with the team that was created and why that team worked and why they were able to like latch on and like lock arms with me and move forward when we just lost somebody we cared about. You know, like th those things is something that can't be diminished in any sense of the word. That's why certain people from what Death Leaves Behind that are also in my company now, like the Audacity, and it's our company. It's not like my thing and I'm just putting you in little pieces, like it's ours because we went to war together. So now we can go ahead and make these videos and we, can, we, we do all these little projects for people outside of just a ma major film. We have two, two shows going on right now that were one in pre-production, one in production. and All these things that we're doing, I just feel so confident in the room with these people because I saw them in bad moments. And that's a luxury because usually 
you hire these people, you have an idea of what they'll do and you try to be prudent, but then you get into something you're like, oh, they couldn't handle the pressure. I know these people can, they've been pressurized and they've been pressure tested. And these, these guys aren't going anywhere. So I, I think that that's something that was very important for me. A lot of people we lost, and I don't mean on the deaf side, I mean like people that just didn't, didn't work. They couldn't handle the pressure. Even though we finished a film with them, I know not, you're not who I want to go to war with. So I scaled down the, the, the inner circle, but that circle is so solid. And I know we can achieve anything um, going forward. And I know I can, I can answer any promise, anything put in front of me by somebody with the money, the investor or a network or whatever, because we, we can overcome. We can overcome anything. What about the best year you've mm. had? Best year? Right now. Right now is the best year. It's still going. Um, and it's not just because so many things are happening. It's kind of like you do something and you got to keep telling yourself, it's going to work, it's going to work. And then you get to that moment where it just it's working. You don't have to tell yourself anymore. And that's actually hard sometimes too because it's like you've developed this place for so long where you're like, Oh, come on, it's gonna work, you're gonna be all right. Keep going, keep going. And then it's working, and like even Chad, uh, my executive producer, had to remind me like, this is great. And I'm like, come on, just, everybody settle down. Like, you know, but it's like, you get to kind of enjoy it too. I'm still very much in like, you know, a fixer mode always, but it's, it's one of those things where you can actually say it, it worked, something worked, not it's going to work, it worked, and then go into the next thing knowing you made something work. So this, is, this right now is the best year so far. So coming off of what was the worst year, now going into what seems like the best year. Yeah, for sure, for sure. And that, that contrast, to be the same person in both is, yeah, we got a theatrical run. Yes, we're going to be on the platforms that I promised our executive producer. Yes, he's gonna make his return and all those things that you, as a producer, like, oh, I gotta do this. But the win for me was remaining who I am in those adversities. and regardless of anything that happened, for me first, because I look at myself first, to remain who I am, and then watch the people that I believed in do the same. We won. Like, there's nothing that can tell me we lost, because that happened. And even before we got our distribution, and before we, like, things were finalized, we just, it was a sense of we won, because we finished when it was really bleak at one moment, you know? So it's like, we, we did it, we did that. So any other achievement is like, wow, this is the icing of the cake. But we've already made the cake, and guys, it tastes good, and we can do it again and again and again because we have the ingredients. And as long as we hold fast to those ingredients, I think another thing that I'm really mindful of right now is we won, we built the cake, or made the cake, and all those analogies, but we can't forget why it worked. We can't start to believe, like, I'm great. No, no, no. It worked because you did great things. So continue to do the great things because I think that's where hubris can creep in. And we can start thinking like, man, I'm good. And yes, we should think that. We should be like, yes, we're good, we like it. But also like, I did good is so much more powerful than I am good. It's so much more, because we're people, we're not perfect, so I am good is a, a wavering thing. Because then you do something bad and you're like, oh, I'm bad. No, you're not. You did good. So even when you lose, if you did good, sometimes you win, sometimes you learn, learn from it. And I'm stealing that from John Maxwell's a great book. Definitely a, a, one of those books that I recommend, but you don't have to lose, you can, as long as you're doing good. So if you're keeping certain things is what you're doing, know that that's gonna work eventually, Be, have that perseverance, but you can't go into something and do bad practices and win and then think, I'm good, I'm bad, I'm the, you're going back and forth between, no, forget I am, just, 
just st stick to I do. And I do this, I do that, I do that, I do that. And that's what I can say, we did that. We did this and it won. We did that and it made a good project. We did that and we we're able to achieve the, the goals that we set forth. And that was what we could do with the smallest amount of money, the least amount of resources, the smallest team. So imagine what happens when we're given the next level and which is what we're doing right now. So I, I'm excited about this greatest year. And um, I think the, the worst year has a lot to do with it though. Cause it wouldn't even feel as good if we didn't, if we didn't win in that way. You said with the worst year, you still remained who you are. Can you explain what that means? Yeah, um, I think I had, I, I mentioned this <laughs> to my team a lot. Um, so to say that I had the worst year and remain who I was, best year remain who I was, I tell my team, they, the close ones saw me in an ugly moment, right? I cried in front of them. This is like, Rachel, this is not emotional, right? <laughs> I cried in front of them and I um, mistook something from one of the, like I said, the inner, inner circle. And I had an ugly moment. And everybody was like, oh, is she okay? Like, it wasn't like, how dare she? I had an ugly moment of like, not cursing anybody, just crying. I cried. I, I had a very weak moment within this time of the craziness. And um, I told them though. I, I cried in things because I had to tell them what I was feeling. And I told them. And then we talked about it and it was over. So I remained myself in a place of, I could have got ugly in that moment because it seemed like certain things were happening or maybe I was feeling insecure because of what I just went through or just, I was off, right? Like I was experiencing things I wasn't used to, like feeling like less of a woman because I didn't carry a child to, to term or those things that you don't, you don't really know are happening until you see something that's like, that's not me. Why am I acting like that? You know? So that moment though, in that moment, I still communicated what I was feeling to my team which is what I tell them I need them to do always. I was like, I don't care if it's ugly. It's something I preach, but I did it. I did that. And for that reason, it didn't spiral into a big problem. It didn't grow. It didn't disturb our, our way of life. That, those ugly moments don't destroy a team. It's because you let that ugly moment or you let that ugly thought fester and things like that. So I spoke to them and we fine, we did it. And we're dealing with, we just dealt with something else in the team. Somebody was dealing with something and I brought that moment up in that, in that, in that meeting. You guys remember when I had the ugly moment? Remember the ugly moment, that's what we call it? And they're like, Rachel wasn't that bad. I'm like, no, that for me is as bad as it's gonna get. Me crying, like all that. So, and I said, did anybody leave me in that moment? No, you guys knew I was dealing with something because I told you. So all that matters is we can remain the solid team. We can remain winners if we continue to communicate and thwart up any doubt and do those things that we all preached, or I preached to them to do, but still maintain a level of self. So regardless of that moment I had, the next day it's like, all right, I'm still gonna get up in the morning, I'm gonna work my butt off for you guys. It doesn't matter if I was crying, I'm working. Where are you at? I'm at set. Like, you know, like I'm, I'm going to still do all the practices that I do. So I worked really hard despite the pain. I treated people with respect despite the pain. I communicated when I had an ugly moment despite the pain. <laughs> Um, I didn't clam up. I didn't do the things that I'm a, a Taurus, like, you know, like we we're stubborn. We kind of, I fought that. I did, wasn't stubborn in the moment. I communicated and, and I treated people with respect when they were treating me bad. Someone was trying to swindle me. I still treated them with respect. I let them know what they did wrong and then I treated them with respect. I didn't demoralize them and spread the nonsense around and tell everybody what they did. Um, so yeah, remaining yourself is so important in good and bad, even more so sometimes in good, because like I said, the hubris that pops up when you're 
wow, it's going good. Let me go ahead and do X, Y, and Z or feel like that's like, wait a minute, that's not you. That's the practice, that's the outcome. So the outcome has nothing to do with the winner. Like if you're a winner, like Serena Williams or whatever, like she just lost uh, the US Open again, like, right? But she won, she, she went out there, she went through what she went through and she still performed. She still, I mean, second place, I mean, goodness gracious for the woman she's gone through, but she went out, she played, that's who she is. She's a hard worker, she went out, she trained. Yes, this uh, body is not what it used to be because of the pregnancy, but I'm still gonna train, I'm still gonna work hard. I'm, still, I'm not gonna give myself excuses or passes to have bad practices or treat someone bad. And that's what I mean by remain yourself in the good times and in the bad times. And I was able to do that, thank goodness, in a time when it was, it was clutch in sports, what we say, or when it was sublime or when it was paramount, like it needed to happen where I remained myself for it to work. So don't let everything crumble in who you are, those, those, those identifying factors about yourself. When things get really bad, that's, the, that's why you were yourself. That's why, that's why you built these things in for this moment. So don't let it fall apart or don't let the ugliness of people bring ugliness in you or react badly. Remain who you are.